0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 27th, this is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this command with an edition of the show. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, it in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86-26. So I would imagine many of you are going to some Halloween party of some variety this weekend. Mardi Gras, of course, coming. I don't go to the dress-up parties any longer, although they always been a bit of fun, but I've just kind of got away from it, I suppose. Anyway, tough night for the Growlers last night. The visiting South Carolina Stingrays put up 6 on the board, beat the Growlers 6-2. The series continues over the weekend, hopefully for better. And the Growlers yesterday signed their former captain, James Melindy for the remainder of the season. Good signing for the Growlers. He kind of keeps people in check out there. Melindy is a force, no doubt about it. And the World Series kicks off tonight. Arizona in Texas, two wildcard teams, unpredicted by anybody, I would imagine, to see those two teams in the World Series in the Fall Classic. Just a very quick note. So this postseason has been really dominated by home runs. I mean, the long ball has been king. When you have a lot of home run hitters, you also have a lot of strikeouts. This is an amazing stat that Dave Williams sent me yesterday. The Philadelphia Phillies, who just lost in the championship series, they struck out 120 times in this postseason. Tony Gwynn, Hall of Famer, one of the legendary hitters of his generation, the great Tony Gwynn struck out 188 times in the 1990s for a decade. And the Phillies struck out 120 times in the postseason one year. Anyway, World the uh, Rugby World Cup. The final goes tomorrow. New Zealand versus South Africa in a titanic matchup. For rugby fans who maybe want to join some other rugby-minded fans alike and watch the final, you can do it at the Swatters Club on Crosby Road. The game is 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. And Team Guzhu. Great picture sent out by the team there a couple of days ago. It's, of course, Brad Guzhu and Mark Nichols. Picture of them today, they've been together for 8,295 days as a pair. So the pitchers are from today versus the uh, Canadian juniors back in 2001. And Guzhu and the boys are playing in the World Championship Qualifier, for the lack of a better phrase. It's the second pan-continental championships being held in Kelowna, BC, starting on the 29th of this month. It's a qualifier because it will establish which, which countries outside of Europe get to play in the 2024 World Championships, which are scheduled for Switzerland, March 30th to April the 7th. Rest easy. Guzhu's pretty confident. He says if they play okay, they'll get in, because there's five spots available. The way the headline is reading is that if Guzhu doesn't win, they don't get to play in the Worlds. So it's a pretty genteel pool in Pool A. Australia, Chinese Taipei, Guyana, Japan, Korea, New Zealand, and the United States. Five teams will qualify. There's also a B pool team. The winner of the B pool gets to play in the A pool next year. So I just mentioned that in the A pool is Guyana. There's very few curlers, or very few curling ice sheets in Guyana. Yet here they are in the Pan Continental Championships in the top pool. Guju says he's never played against anybody from Guyana, but they were warming up at some brink, I think it was in Oakville, Ontario, and he noticed this guy who's really struggling with his slide. Goes down to give him a few tips, and lo and behold, it's one of the Guyanese curlers. So there you go, the boys at the Pan Canadians. Go get him. All right. You've heard me before, kind of dismayed and a little bit frustrated with the just bombardment of sports betting ads when you sit down to watch a the game. They're all in on the sports betting, and I'm sure it's bringing a lot of revenue to the various sports professional uh, organizations. At the same time, yesterday we were told that unrestricted free agent uh, of the Ottawa Senators, Shane Pinto, has been given the NHL's first gambling suspension, and the longest suspension in their history. So it's a bit of confusion, the details are scanty, but he's gonna serve a 41-game suspension for some sports-related gambling. There's reference to third parties, and I don't know what he was gambling on. They say it wasn't on hockey, but pretty strict rule in place. People are saying, "Well, he's not even playing. Is not even signed? How can anyone suspend him?" Well, he is the property, quote unquote, of the Ottawa Senators, and the rules are clear about gambling, the integrity of the game, the integrity of pro sports. Because it's not that long ago, the underarching or overarching sentiment was so many games were fixed. Not necessarily hockey games, because there's a lot to do with trying to fix a hockey game. But that's why sport leagues are so attentive to the whole betting bit. But bombard me with the ads, you're all in on the betting, and you catch someone betting in some form or variety, 41-game suspension. Anyway, there you go. Alright, yesterday we had a pretty comprehensive conversation with the province's Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan, regarding her most recent report, which I refer to as scathing, at the operations, oversight, compensation, gifts, and all the rest at Memorial University. Okay. It The audit period ended last year. So... In a reaction from the uh, university itself, Dr. Neil Bose, the president, is coming on the program at 9.30. They sent me a link yesterday to some of the policies that have changed since the end of the audit period, some of the work yet to be done, so Memorial University will react this morning through their president, Dr. Bose, coming up at 9.30. Looking forward to that. If you want to pepper me with some questions that you'd like to see posed or hear posed to the president of MUN, we can do that for sure. Also yesterday, speaking with Denise Hanrahan, you know, completing an audit at Oil Can be interesting to see what that entails. Crown lands, which I think is going to be a really important document, but the question is rightfully posed by listeners and folks who are just, po- you know, political commentators. Where does accountability lie? You know, it's fine to get these reports, and I think the AG's office obviously does really critically important work for the people of the province. But when something comes out as so-called scathing. And there are uh, fingers of blame or fingers of responsibility that are going to be pointed maybe just for one news cycle. And then sometimes, in some people's minds and arenas, it just goes away. So, yes, people are fair to say, okay, we got a report. Now what? So the university says it's changed many policies, and we'll examine those with Dr. Bose this morning. But the whole concept of who was in charge, the who knew what when, and as a result of this work done by the AG, what next? It's not just about changing policies, necessarily. It's about changing leadership sometimes. Because the folks in the know that allow the entitlements to continue the way they have, and this is not just about Mon. this is across the gamut. ABCs, the operations of government, and yes, institutions like Memorial University. So when people ask for how does accountability work, it's absolutely a fair question. Now the Auditor General, in the early stages, looking into the operations and the management of supply at Newfoundland Labrador Housing pretty big piece of work to say the very least. They have not yet fully defined the scope and the objective of this particular audit, but when we talk about housing, which we do, as we should, good piece of work coming from the Auditor General's office on that front. And of course, in pretty standard political operations, the call for resignations of ministers is as old as time. And in this case, there's been calls for the resignation of Social Development Minister Paul Pike about housing. I think Tony Wakeham would like to come on here this morning, and we'll, you know, we'll hear from Tony on what he thinks about this and the rationale for calling for resignation. But whether it's a misspeak or a mislead or whatever it is, when the government was quick to trumpet all the work they've done on housing, the number of units that have been completed, you know, we were all going around with the number 750, even though no one was really able to find many examples beyond some of the pretty minimal housing options that were announced by government, so 750 is 11. Then it gets worse for the government here on this front, and maybe for Minister Pike, we'll see what his future holds. When people are asked to move from a tent encampment into an emergency shelter as a transition to more permanent housing, just to find out that some of these shelters are absolutely disgraceful. So, you know, the concept of regular inspections so that they can be a safe place to lay your head, you know, free of Rodent, feces, free of the mold, all the issues, you know, under the sink in the bathroom, a little pail full of used needles, all these things. So this one lady, she accepts the emergency shelter. She goes there and quickly says, man, this is not fit for man nor beast. And she's not wrong. So immediately the inspectors were sent. A cleaning crew was deployed. But the thought and the concept is, do we not have a better understanding of exactly what these shelters look like especially when we're paying over 10 million dollars a year half of which goes to the for-profit sector in the emergency shelters maybe just maybe as opposed to simply being a way to get you out of the eyeballs of those working at confederation building looking across the parkway to see these tents and or the tents that are now popping up around colonial building and out in Bowering park and other places across the province you know the trail network in happy valley goose bay we're going to need shelters but the shelters cannot simply be Four walls, a roof, a door, and inside, who knows what kind of conditions people are being asked to live in. You can look down your nose at folks that need the shelters if you see fit, but the fact of the matter is, human beings, it's a government-proposed policy. As a transitional emergency shelter, it's got to be fit. And in this case, it's not. That's landing on Minister Pike if you want to take it on. You know what to do. All right, let's get into this one. There is no such thing as happenstance in politics. Timing is absolutely everything. Yesterday, the federal government announced that they were not cancelling, some people are using that word, they're pausing carbon tax on home heating fuels for three years. You know, if people want to say it's a flip-flop, and of course it's all about timing, it's all about their uh, polling numbers, which are plummeting, and this is a vote-buying issue. Fair enough but it's also a victory for folks who are worried about and have paid carbon tax to fill up their tank recently because it's a huge implication. The GST remains. I've long thought that tax on home heating fuels, an actual necessity of life in the northern country like Canada, we should probably be talking about how we tax those home heating fuels, period. Carbon tax does remain on gas and diesel and the like, but home heating fuel. Okay, it's a victory for people who are deathly worried about it. At the same time, it is fair to ask, what changed? So yes, in Atlantic Canada, different than many other parts of the country, given some 30% of homeowners in this region still use furnace oil to heat their home, great. But what changed is a fair ball question. It's not that long ago there was a non- non-binding motion in the House of Commons about this exact issue. Issues, five to six Liberal members of Parliament from this province voted against this particular action. But now, and look, again, political timing is a very calculated science. So whether this be to take some of the wind out of the sails of Mr. Poliev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and he's axed the tax tour, it's not just about this province either, because Nova Scotia doing the same thing yesterday. And I'm sure he and many other supporters of the CPC, they will latch on to the timing issue, and so be it. You want to take it on? Let's go. Also, there's going to be more support for free and subsidized uh, heat pumps. Talking about low-income earners in the country, the cutoff threshold, I'm trying to find the specific number, but I believe it's going to be somewhere around $32,500 for annual income. Pretty low benchmark. So, yes, for many people who still have uh, oil as their primary source of heat in the home, this is good news. But again, it's only a three-year pause which is another fair question. What's the justification behind three years? What changes in three years from now? If we are talking about climate change, control of emissions, is it all about simply giving people the time to make the transition? We also wonder how this is going to couple with some of the provincial programs and policies that are also in place. To that end, we're hoping that we're going to speak with Minister Davis this morning about exactly that and some other things in the environment envelope, but carbon tax has been paused for three years. Not cancelled. They're quick to use that one. Carbon tax is currently priced at sixty-five bucks a ton of emissions and set to rise by fifteen dollars every year to twenty thirty. So again, the concept of more money in my pocket based on rebates and that number has been verified by, say, for instance, the Parliamentary Budget Office, saying eighty percent of Canadians will indeed get as much they pay in carbon tax or more in the form of the quarterly rebate. But yes, the political timing is—you don't need to be a savant to dig into that one. Anyway, you want to take it on? A friend and neighbor of mine yesterday uh, posed this question as I ran into him in the parking lot of the grocery store about the fact that the government recently announced that there's going to be free medicals for seniors 75 and older when they go to get their driver's license renewed and of course need that examination and a medical document signed by a doctor. Lots of confusion out there, (laughs) like many government policies. So this one clinic that my friend went to, he thought it was free. Because the government told him it was free. So even the clinic itself, they said when it came out, uh, that will be $60, sir. He said, I thought it was free. He said, so did we. So the clerk at the receptionist at that clinic said, yeah, we thought the exact same thing. We were telling seniors 75 and older when they came in for this particular document to be signed, they just let him go. No charge. Consequently, they sent all of the receipts to the provincial government for reimbursement and all of were rejected. So it's a matter of the senior themselves to keep the receipts, submit them to the provincial government for a reimbursement up to $100, but it is not. So even the clinic was confused, and that's how they make money. right? That's the revenue stream. So they let who knows how many seniors, 75 and older, simply walk off, and they had all the receipts rejected by MCP, so that's the issue. Got an update yesterday on healthcare recruitment, specifically in the nursing profession, from Dr. Megan Hayes, Assistant Deputy Minister responsible for recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals, toughest job in the province. So apparently there's been some 200, let me get the number right in front of me, 239 nurses have been hired since April of 2023. The issue regarding working alongside travel agency nurses, of course, must be extremely frustrating for the RNs that are working for public health or for the newfoundland Labrador Health Services. $100 million this year is going to be spent on these private agency nurses. Dr. Hayes says, you know, it's a quote-unquote necessary evil. They're working towards hopefully not having to rely on travel agency nurses at all. But at this moment in time, that's exactly where we are. Look, I don't begrudge anyone when someone dangles a carrot that says, okay, come work for us in the private sector, get paid more, maybe double to do the exact same job as you were doing as a member of Eastern Health, say, at the time. So they took the job. The issue here, I suppose, like, for instance, I have a contract that says I have a non-compete clause. If I quit today, I cannot work in this industry for a year. Maybe, just maybe, a non-compete for current RNs working for the government, you know, of course, that dangle is very real and very attractive. But let's put some qualifiers in place. And I don't think that's mean-spirited or untoward. Non-competes are pretty general stuff out there in the big scheme of things. So you want to keep more nurses from leaving to take on that job? Maybe, just maybe, you can't do it for a year if you decide to leave. And I'll get some nurses mad at me, but c'est la vie. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to your calls. Are, Are you... An Air Canada disgruntled passenger, one of the 61,000 complaints in front of the Canadian Transportation Agency, Air Canada is offering a real cut rate. So one specific example is a lady had about a $1,500 complaint lodged at the CTA. Air Canada is offering her $400 in the form of a travel voucher. If you accept it, then you have to drop your complaint with CTA. So, you know, pennies on the dollar that they're trying to, they're saying they're trying to help CTA clear up the backlog, Half of the flights that were delayed in 2022 were as a result of the airline operations. Not the weather, not anything else, the airlines themselves. They sold us a ticket. If you're not prepared to handle my business, don't sell me the ticket. All right? You can't plant that level of uh, anticipation of service, and then half of the flights, some, something at the airlines has gone sideways, and consequently, we don't get it. This one's a bit dire, but I think it's worthwhile mentioning. With all the wars and conflicts and people talking about World War III and nuclear Armageddon and all the rest of it, it was 61 years ago today that one man, the right place, at the right time, did the right thing, and they called him the man that saved the world. His name is Vasily Arkhipov. During the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, he stood down two other officers aboard the Soviet submarine B-59 over the decision to launch a nuclear torpedo salvo against the US Navy. So, It had no radio communications for quite a long time with Moscow. The U.S. Navy was dropping depth charges in an effort to force the submarine to surface. So the leadership on board, and at that point, there was only the requirement of the skipper and the political officer to say yay to absolutely turn the keys and launch a nuclear weapon. But uh, Mr. Arkhipov was also on at that point and he was in charge of the fleet, which required three votes. He voted against it. They thought the war was probably ongoing, so when they say the man that saved the world, he probably did. Had the Soviets launched that missile during the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course the Americans would respond in kind. So on this date, October 27th, 1962, the man who saved the world, Vasily Arkhipov. That's a pretty cool story. Last one, much more pleasant. So we wanted to say, I had it here a second ago, here it is. I want to say happy 70th birthday to Gail Clements. She was the lunch lady, and if you were a school-aged child that ate in the cafeteria, you knew the school lunch lady. She worked at Holy Trinity and Juniper Ridge for a long time. goes on to say in the email, she's fed lunch to children more often than their parents for the last 20 years or more. She retired this year, and she's celebrating her birthday today, so happy birthday to you, Gail. Hope you're enjoying your retirement. Have a terrific day, and thanks for tuning in to the show. We're on Twitter or VOSM up online. You know what to do. Email address is fiosim.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week that requires your participation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Dennis O'Keefe. You're on the air. Good morning, Doc.
1: Hi, Patty.
0: Good morning to you. How are you? Not bad, I suppose. How about you?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I'm good, boy. You're getting over a cold, huh?
0: I am. It's hanging on, though. Won't uh, go away.
1: yeah. They tend to, By the older you get, the longer they hang on. <laughs> Patty, True. Uh yeah. Uh, Teddy. as you know, I'm sure uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I had a, a really serious heart issue. And uh, since that time, I've had an abiding interest in the Heart and Stroke Foundation and in heart research and stroke research and rehab being done here in Newfoundland, Labrador. So I just wanted to bring out this morning the fact that I'm now part of a group, and this group are pretty well people who experience heart issues and stroke issues, and they're interested now in establishing a new heart and stroke association in Newfoundland, Labrador, and basically it will replace the current body that we had the Heart and Stroke Foundation itself. So you might ask why this is happening.
0: That's what I'm going to ask.
1: Yeah, I kind of figured that. And uh, what's been happening in the past year is uh, financial disagreements along with a policy change which would see the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador, Heart and Stroke Foundation of Nova Scotia, and the Heart and Stroke Foundation of TEI, New Brunswick is independent and doesn't operate as part of the national body. So these three foundations in Atlantic Canada would be melded into and become part of the Quebec body. And as a result of the financial disagreement and this new policy direction, the... Executive Director of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador was declared redundant and as a result of what was perceived by the board and legitimately so by the board of Heart and Stroke Newfoundland Labrador uh, seeing that these two issues were unacceptable in particular the way the Executive Director Of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador was treated, the board of directors of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador resigned en masse. So what we have now is a non functioning, pretty well, Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador. There's no executive director, there's no leadership, there is no board of directors. And as far as I can understand, there is no office. So, you know, people need to know that uh, sending monies now to the Heart and Stroke Foundation, these monies, these funds that exit out of Newfoundland Labrador will now go directly to Ontario. And uh, there's really... Uh, whether or not that money will find its way back to Newfoundland and Labrador as happened in the past so that heart and stroke research would happen here in this province and rehab research and direction would occur in this province. There's no guarantee that this kind of funding will come back to this province because the monies now are going into Ontario. So our group has decided that the time has come to establish an independent, similar to New Brunswick, an independent Heart and Stroke Foundation of Newfoundland Labrador that will operate uh, here in this province. And the funding as a charitable uh, charitable foundation ie association uh the uh, the funding will stay here in newfoundland labrador and the money will go to research and rehab in at the university and so on uh, in uh in and on heart and stroke issues so that's where we are right now
0: okay good i mean it's unfortunate that these steps had to be taken but if that's the case i'm glad people are stepping up to make it more efficient and transparent, and all the buzzwords that we use all the time, but that's the good news, Dennis. I think you want to make comment on the AG's report as well before we run out of time.
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, I just, <laughs> I just find find it astounding. I mean, you know, uh, we had a report from the from the Auditor General and the University. Part of that report, legitimately in the eyes of the Auditor General, uh, spoke to the issue of. Uh, uh, financial excesses, i.e., bonuses, uh, at the Genesis Centre and in at Secor, and so then when the Auditor General released her report, that, those sections on uh, Genesis Centre and Secor identifying excessive bonuses and and people involved were all redacted. And you know, the Minister of Justice, uh, I think, first off last week indicated that this was part of the uh, TIPA process. And now we learn that, in fact, we now have the lawyers for Corps and Genesis, if I'm if I'm getting this right, uh, sending cease and desist letters to the Auditor General and and the. Justice, the provincial government then directs that these sections in that report be redacted and I just find it astounding that uh, a few lawyers letters can result in in this nullification of the uh, work of the Auditor General. I mean the Auditor General is there to oversee legitimately uh, government financial operations and part of that in, in, in her purview is the uh, the university uh, financial spending, and part of that is Secor, and and the Genesis Centre, and and now that's being cancelled out all on the basis of two lawyers' letters saying, "Hey, cease and desist." So, uh, my question, I guess, publicly would be, who is trying to hide what?
0: I suppose, but I don't know even who can answer that one, to be honest. Those questions I have planned for Mr. Hogan, for Michael Harvey, and I will broach it with uh, Dr. Bowes here this morning. Absolutely. Another question that I would add on top of that is how does that bonus structure even work? Because they both have big corporate partners. You know, Genesis Center has an incubator and what have you. So yeah. how are they measuring success? And who's actually involved in compiling money that would be paid out in the form of bonus? Does it come from MUN's operating budget? Does it come from partners, whether they be corporate Canada or corporate North America? How does it work? Because they're kind of two different things. Not to say that I shouldn't be able to have a look at it because they are absolutely arms of Memorial University, I would add to that the works as well. So I absolutely will ask Dr. Bose about that and get his thoughts on it. But I have those questions planned for Michael Harvey and Mr. Hogan.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just find that, you know, given, given what happened with NALCOR and given now what's happening at the university and, uh, you know, uh, no accountability, no oversight, uh, spending hundreds of millions of dollars, I mean, the university alone is... Uh, something like $360 million annually going from the taxpayers' money into the university. And, uh, uh, so, and yet there's no oversight and apparently no accountability. And and the Auditor General can be nullified by by a lawyer's letter to the provincial government. I mean, you know, this is kind of like Banana Republic financing.
0: Let me see what we can do with uh, Dr. Bose here this morning, because there's a lot to the Auditor General's report. The yeah. university sent along an update yesterday about the fact that the audit uh, period ended sometime last year. There's some work's been done, some work yet to be done. We'll try to find exactly where we are today, because when I say the word scathing, it's what it was. And, you know, maybe there's more information that we need to add to the pile, which I'm happy to do because information is power, knowledge is power, and we're going to do exactly that right after this break. And I appreciate the time this morning, Doc. Keep us updated on the newly established Heart and Stroke Foundation when things get going.
1: I will, Petty, and thanks very much. And you have a good weekend. Rest easy.
0: Yeah, very same to Thanks, Doc. Okay, okay, bye. Take care, bye-bye. Yeah, All right, bye. let's go and take that breakdown time. When we come back, the President and Vice Chancellor Pro tempore at Memorial University is Dr. Neil Bose. He's next in the queue. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number one is the President and Vice Chancellor Pro Tempor at Memorial University of Newfoundland. That's Dr. Neil Bose. Dr. Bose, you're on the air.
3: Uh, Good morning, Paddy. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank
0: you. You know, before we get into some of the details of the findings of the Auditor-General's report and some of the things that have been done at Memorial University to change its ways and work that has yet to be done, I'm curious, you know, obviously with what they call a culture of overspending, inefficiency, lack of accountability, in-house there was an awareness of this. Maybe not to the extent that the Auditor-General's report reflects, but... When the government withheld $68 million, which of course saw the doubling of tuition, was there any effort in-house to not have it reflected directly on tuition but to try to curb some of this overspending that was obviously happening at Memorial University? So was anything entertained beyond just immediately going to doubling tuition? Uh,
3: Thank you for the question. Well, we have set the findings of the Auditor General's report and I'd like to uh, uh, say that over the last uh, 10 years, $55 $55 million has been taken out of the university's budget, reduced in the university's operating budget, and those progressive cuts have led to um, efficiencies right across the uh, institution. Uh, the, the report now uh, it gives a, a picture at the present time, and, and we're committed to bringing in further changes to... Um, Uh, to streamline us even more so we actually welcome uh, the findings and uh, because it gives us uh, uh, further information further uh, uh, advice and uh, uh, an impetus to uh, proceed further
0: so when the Student Union and the Faculty Association both say none of this is surprising because they knew there was this type of culture of overspending, so again, was there any exercise or attention given to anything but doubling tuition when the government withheld that additional $68 million over five years?
3: $68 million is a very large part of the uh, university's budget. So um, uh, you can see that... Uh, 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 um, uh, if administrative costs were cut by $100 per student that would be 1.9 million so you see you can see that there's an enormous amount uh, uh, in that $68 million it's not possible to um, just trim uh, a certain amount off the administration costs and uh, then not uh, uh, address the issue of the $68 million tuition offset grant uh, cut.
0: If you took $100 off the administrative salaries per student at $2,369 to bring it down to $2,269, it would still be way ahead of the next most expensive university at 1994 So you're saying it's an impossibility or was there any attention given to that potential to not see a doubling of tuition?
3: So we will focus on uh, change and we will be looking at uh, uh, overall administrative costs and we will be bringing in um, uh, changes to um, uh, address these going forward, uh, as, as the university has been doing over the last 10 years, as I explained, with um, uh, $55 million taken out of the budget in 10 years.
0: I'm curious on your thoughts of some of the redactions that were part of the report. Lawyers back in August from uh, Genesis uh, Centre and Secor sent cease and desist to uh, Denise Hanrahan's office. So, I know there are, you know, part of the university. Your thoughts on why we're not able to see under the hood there, with whether it be compensation and or bonuses paid or whatever we're not allowed to see at this moment in time. Your thoughts as the leader of the university?
3: Yes, so these are separately uh, incorporated entities. They act uh, at arm's length from the university. The the reason, of course, I have no... uh, 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 idea exactly why the government redacted certain information from the report. That's government legal advice that uh, that led to that. But I do know that uh, from the advice, the legal advice the university had and that the SIEs had, the uh, separately incorporated entities had, they uh, were uh, had been given advice that they were not part of the... Uh, Uh, they they don't uh, have to provide the compensation disclosures that uh, a public body like Memorial does have to uh, provide. The AG uh, uh, takes a different view on that, and uh, this comes down to a discussion uh, 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 between uh, legal uh, legal discussion, which, um, uh, of course, uh, the outcome of which uh, we will... um, um, we
0: will follow. Regarding compensation, I would like to see those numbers because as they might be so-called standalone. They are simply arm's length of the university and play a distinct role in the operations, academically as an incubator and research, both at Corps and Genesis. Let's talk about compensation. So the report says that about an average of $143,000 difference between the salary of a campus vice president and what would people would call the equivalent in operations of government, an assistant deputy minister... So what has been done to address that? Are we seeing salary rollbacks, or what are you going to do in the future? Because there's a long way between an assistant deputy minister, their role, and we'll get into job descriptions in a moment. What's going to be done now about compensation afforded to these executive positions?
3: Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, the roles at uh, the university are not equivalent to the government, and so uh, our compensation uh, 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 comparators are equivalent universities and you'll see actually on uh, in information we provided on our website the uh, the levels of uh, uh, presidential and VP salaries at Memorial in comparison with Dalhousie, UNB and University of Victoria which are uh, very comparable universities to Memorial.
0: So that said, what what's behind this disparity between administrative salaries per student at Memorial University than it's next closest and the national average of $893? Why the big difference if we have a comparative scale for uh, compensation? Uh
3: the uh, well those two are different things, but uh I can ex- uh, we do know why there's some differences. Uh the first is that uh uh, the uh, StatsCAN uh, information, which the AG was uh, working from, uh, includes um, total numbers of students at Memorial. And uh, so, to get the number of admins costs uh, per student, you divide the admin cost by the student load. We know that there's a certain level of students that are not counted in that StatsCAN information because none of the diploma students at uh, Marine Institute, which is which, uh, actually the majority of students at the Marine Institute are not counted in our student total. So that, uh, that, that sets us on the high side. The other thing that sets us on the high side is uh, the fact that we have uh, uh, multiple campuses uh, with, uh, which historically have been set up with uh, uh, their own administrative services and... Uh, 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 and so that also adds to the administrative costs of the university per student. And these are the sorts of things we have to look at really, really hard going forward. How can we streamline those operations and uh, uh, and bring our uh, per student uh, costs, admin student per student costs, down even further?
0: When we talk about accountability and comparative scale for compensation for different positions at the administrative or executive level, of the VPs, or pardon me, uh, 36 positions were sampled. 97% did not have a position description, no job description. No position descriptions for the seven VPs and none for 28 of the 29 management positions. Would you agree that it's hard to know whether or not we have an administrative bloat, whether or not we have accountability, given the fact that we don't really know what the core responsibilities are of leadership and executive positions. Will they be established so that we can better have a threshold for monitoring and check boxes for success and or efficiencies?
3: So the university does actually have descriptions of each of the positions that we have, um, they, uh, each of the administrators in our university know absolutely very clearly what their job is. Uh, many of these positions are relatively new. Uh, they've been hired recently, and there are uh, uh, job advertisements and documentation and uh, role descriptions, all of which pertain to these positions.
0: If that's the case, why was the Department of Human Resources unable to provide that information to the Auditor General?
3: Uh, I, uh, the, the, all of this information has been provided to the Auditor-General.
0: But, of course, a call coming directly from her office said, as a result, we could not determine the exact number of staff performing specific functions within the university. So there's a, there's a contradiction between you saying they have it versus the Auditor-General saying they don't have it. Can you help us understand why that would be?
3: The university cooperated fully with the Auditor General and uh, will do going forward. We, uh, we've actually welcomed them into our uh, operation and we provided uh, uh, them with the uh, uh, total information. Uh, In some cases, uh, we have role descriptions that might not have position description written at the top, but all this information has been provided to them. And I can assure you that the university does know exactly what each of its positions, uh, uh, their job description is.
0: When we talk about compensation policies, non-existent or outdated as quoted by the Auditor General, it's some of the smaller price tag items that really draw the eye or the curiosity of the tax paying public here. Things like $50,000, special allowances for dean and directors to host events attended solely by university staff. So there's also concerns about travel. What's been put in place to see pre-approval of these types of expenditures before they happen? Because those are the little ones that really draw people's attention. $2,700 for an office uh, desk and a chair, and expensive chocolates. What's gonna be put in place insofar as guardrails so that these things aren't part and parcel with the culture of Memorial University in the future?
3: So some of these things pertain to uh, former employees, which I uh, I cannot really comment on. What I can comment on is uh, uh, quite a number of changes have been brought in in the last six months. And uh, uh, we have uh, focused in on um, ensuring that uh, deviations and policy are minimized. That actually is a good example. You you raised travel. So um, over the years, we've had uh, uh, increasing number of deviations on travel policy because the, uh, the per diem rates have been set uh, uh, 25 years ago. And uh, we have recently uh, changed those rates to uh, agreement at uh, Board of Regents. Um, to uh, reduce the number of deviations that that occur and the administrative uh, approach that goes with that. We've also um, uh, changed the approach to uh, travel requests, which you also raised, uh, of the uh, senior executive. All employees actually have to fill in a travel request uh, uh, sign-off system form uh, to travel uh, uh, before they travel. And the, in this case, at the senior exec level, we have uh, uh, tightened up how that uh, is agreed to. And this is a change that's been brought in over the last six months. So, so now the BP, I sign off on travel requests for the VPs and the board uh, chair signs off travel for, for, for me as president.
0: Where does the responsibility ultimately lie? Is it with the Board of Regents or Mr. Barnes and his group? Is it with the Senate? Is it in your office? Because when we are going to be looking for a further examination of policies being currently implemented and work yet to be done, just to get a measure of where we are, where does the responsibility lie? Who should I have on next, say this time next year, to see where we are? Yourself, Mr. Barnes, someone from the Senate, where should we go? Uh,
3: well, it actually depends on which part of the university, what part uh, uh, is... Uh uh, is your area of focus if you're talking about the uh, operations like today mm-hmm. it would be the president uh, and it, uh, the, the board of Is overall uh, uh, has oversight of the uh, uh, university in a governance sense, the operational sense of course it's the executive, executive and hence uh, uh, the president is responsible for the operational aspects. If it's the academic part of the university, then uh, uh, that's where all the uh, programming is decided at Senate. Uh, And uh, again, actually, the president chairs Senate. But uh, there are a lot of academic voices that it's often useful to engage as well.
0: I suppose I should have been a bit more precise because I was thinking operations more than anything else. Very quickly before we let you go, this is outside the scope of the AG's report. But every year we have an issue regarding uh, international students and access to housing. In the last couple of years has been further complicated and exacerbated. With an active recruitment program at Memorial University to bring international students in, do you think it should be more the responsibility of the university to provide housing? Because the stress is on the market here in the city, vacancy rate about 3%, and I know there's a lot of work to be done infrastructure-wise at Memorial, but do you think that the uh, university should own much more, if not all, the responsibility for housing the students they recruited?
3: So uh, in fact, the university has the responsibility, as you say, for um, ensuring that housing uh, uh, or students coming in um, are able to solve their housing problem. But I would also say that it's not, uh, the university shouldn't uh, prefer provide all of that accommodation. We do have had a uh, housing uh, uh, issue here this uh, fall with the start of the academic year. It's nowhere near as severe uh, as it is in other places, and housing. Uh, 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 there's housing issues right across Canada and also Australia and other parts of the world. Here in here in uh, Newfoundland, uh, the, the uh, situation where well, we're now at a point where we've got uh, uh, we still do have uh, incoming families uh, in temporary accommodation. The uh, the individual students uh we actually have vacancies now so both at graduate and undergraduate level so there there isn't a, a shortage there and i will say that uh, we welcome this uh this private sector development that is uh planned to be built over the next year uh to the west of the campus here in st john's because that will also provide um, accommodation and alle- of this type and it will alleviate. Um, the, uh, the housing uh, market for the um, for students coming in, which is obviously very good. The international students are hugely valuable to Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, bringing in diversity, adding to um, uh, startup companies, and so on. More than half now of the um, incubated companies at the uh, the uh, at Genesis. Uh, which is one of our separately incorporated entities. More than half of those startups are actually international uh, entrepreneurs.
0: Uh, Very last one, and far be it for me to put this policy forward, but... You know, with the premiers commented on this report, would you accept as the president of the university some caveats associated with government transfer dollars to make sure that some of these pledges to do better, to tighten up for better oversight and monitoring of all the issues we broached this morning? You know, for a checklist, have you met this pledge? Have you implemented this policy? Would you accept if the government said, unless you do it, there'll be further jeopardy to government transfer of money?
3: We've, uh, we work closely with government uh, on this and uh, have met uh, several times this week uh, uh, and regularly meet with them. So we are constantly uh, uh, talking with them and are accountable to government. We take uh, that accountability extremely seriously and, uh, uh, because of the, uh, the public funds that are entrusted in the university.
0: I appreciate your time this morning, Doctor Bowes. We'll reach out again in the near future to see where we are at. Mon.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. That's Doctor Neil Bowes, the President and Vice Chancellor pro tempore at Memorial University. Time for a break. When we come back, Brad's in the queue to talk about a VOWR annual fundraiser. I think this is their hundredth anniversary. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Brad Strange. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad.
2: More, Patty, we just wanted to give you a call this morning. I'm uh, one of the many volunteers at B O W R Radio, and we are wanting to highlight our uh, annual radio Radiothon, which is happening tomorrow.
0: Sounds good. Tell us about what the listeners are going to hear, what you're trying to raise, and what is it earmarked for, that kind of stuff.
2: So every, of course, as you know, and many of your listeners know, we're an all-volunteer station, and mm-hmm. we've been broadcasting. Now that we're in our 100th year, we started out in uh, July 1924. It was a kind of a pipe dream of the minister at Wesley Methodist Church at the time, And we started our broadcast actually over the telephone lines. So we've come leaps and bounds certainly since then. But as as many people know, it it costs to uh, run a station, even though we're all volunteer and and a nonprofit. So we are looking to raise a few few dollars tomorrow. Um, October is our fundraising month every year, and normally we do have a, a radiothon. So I'd like to tell your listeners how they can help us out tomorrow, if I could. Let's do it. Sure, so you can give us a call at uh, 709-579-9233. Uh, if you can't get through, please try again. We're going to have as many volunteers down to the, tomorrow morning as we can to to get your pledges and your donations. Um, they can also send them in through manager at bowr.org. Uh, you can donate securely at bowr.org. And you can also drop the uh, donation off at our studio down at 101 Patrick Street. There's a secure drop-off box. And tomorrow, of course, for the Radiothon, Uh, If you want to come down and have a uh, tour of the station, there is an open house between 2 and 4 p.m.
0: Terrific. I have friends that actually volunteer with you guys. And, of course, we have a relationship uh, with VOWR, with some engineering and that kind of stuff. When you had problems with some infrastructure, we try to be there because it's a proud history that everyone should be celebrating. And hopefully, uh, if they have the resources and the wherewithal to contribute to see it open and operating for another 100 years, what kind of operating costs need to be covered, Brad? Because the volunteer effort is very obvious at VOWR. What does it cost for on the station, if you don't mind sharing that number? And feel free not to if it's something private.
2: Well, well, not, it's not not that it's private. No, I just I don't have the information that's of okay. that, of course, But as one of the volunteers, but we do, of course, have a, a day-to-day running operation. Of course, electricity and uh, uh, heating and the, all the kinds of things that you know, the day-to-day cost to to essentially run a business. Um, we're, we're lucky in the fact that um, we uh, we do have a, a very well um, fine-tuned system after a hundred years. Uh, that we're pretty frugal with their money, but it does uh, it does take a uh, a bit of money to to run the business, um, especially something that's uh, uh, a radio station like VOWR.
0: Look, I think it's great. I tune in. I have to admit, even to the folks here at VOCM. I listen to VOWR Sometimes it is actually really quite enjoyable, easy listening kind of content. Ah, uh, Brad, give the folks the detailed coordinates one more time if they'd like to participate tomorrow, even for a drop in and have a look around.
2: Sure. Again, we're having our radios on tomorrow, Saturday, between 9 and 5 p.m. You can give us a call at 709-579-9233. Again, if you can't get through, please keep trying, and we will be sure to answer your call. You can also e-transfer to manager at bowr.org. Donate securely through our website at bowr.org. Or, again, you can drop into our station between 2 and 4 yesterday. Tomorrow, sorry, in person and uh, drop it off and have a look around.
0: I appreciate this, Brad. Good luck tomorrow. Thanks so much, Betty. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's a fellow from Memorial University who was... Ringing the bell and talking about the issues for spending and the like at Memorial University over the years. That's Matt Barter. That's as old as 2019 or 2020. He's in the queue. Keith Fitzpatrick, our buddy from Lab West. We're going to talk about the yet-to-be-opened six-bed unit for mental health treatment in his area. Then we're going to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament, elected in and serving the folks of the Long Range Mountains. She's the minister responsible for OCOA and rural economic development. That's Goody Hutchings. Good morning, Minister Hutchings. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty. Good morning to your radio audience this morning. It's a beautiful day. I'm here in St. John's this morning.
0: Terrific. So I assume we're going to talk about the pause of three years on carbon tax associated with home heating fuels. You and four of your colleagues, other than Ken McDonald, uh, voted against exactly this not that long ago. So what's changed?
4: Look, Patty, we listen to our constituents and we know that affordability is an issue all across the country and here in Atlantic Canada. We know that in Atlantic Canada, as a percentage of the population, more people use oil to heat their homes. And that's exactly what we did. We had a program out there, to uh, the oil to heat pump program, and we've tweaked that now. So we're doubling the rural top up of the Climate Action Incentive. We're suspending the fuel charge on home heating oil for three years, and in that three years, we're enhancing the heat pump program so folks can avail up to $15,000 from the federal government. And then when you add what the province uh, in there, take charge in the land program. So that'll be up to $22,000 for folks to be able to put a heat pump in, and there's also a $250 sign-up bonus to get people to sign up for this program. Patty, look, we all know that heat pumps are cheaper, it's cleaner than electric heat, so more folks on heat pumps is more folks off oil, and more money in people's pockets, and it's better for the environment.
0: What's the income threshold to qualify for the program?
4: It's a medium um, income for the province, and it's based on... um, um, Stats Canada, there's a bunch of variety, but, but it, it's basically on the Take Charge Newfoundland website. It's the same me, uh, same income as in the exist, the original oil the heat pump program. And then for those that are under the that don't qualify for the hundred percent for the medium to low income, there is the original program that is you know um, that there's some assistance and then you can pay back interest free over time. So look, this is about getting people off oil, which is better for the environment.
0: It certainly would be some aspect of people moving off from home heating fuels, but the immediate reaction in some corners is that this is strictly politically motivated. The liberals are suffering in the polls. You know, that acts the tax national campaign has got some traction in some people's minds. So just speak to the fact that people think this is strictly politically motivated. Whether or not it's going to see more people move off of home heating fuels remains to be seen.
4: So, Patty, look. Uh, opposition, here Polyev, has a slogan, but we've come up with solutions. Um, you know, he doesn't have a plan. So ask him, please, what his plan is to a- address climate change. We all know climate change is real. You and I spoke after, we spoke many times, but especially after that horrific incident out on the southwest coast, Hurricane Fiona. Look what our friends in Nova Scotia have gone through with drought, with fires, and then weeks later, incredible floods with more loss of life. Look what's gone out in BC. You know, talk to the farmers on the prairie. Climate change is real. I challenge people to ask Mr. Polly, what is your plan to address climate change? We have an obligation to make to do better. This is the way we, we can do better by helping people that probably didn't have $20,000 because they're living paycheck to paycheck. They weren't able to avail a program to get off of oil. We're there to help them and we'll continue to be there. And you know what? As for the polls, Look at the polls in 2015, Patty. They had us in third place, and we went on to win a majority government. So I don't pay any attention to the polls. I listen to my constituents, and I'm going to work hard for them every single
0: day. Your constituents were also saying this when you voted against it last time. And the issues we talk about, severe weather events, these have been years, decades in the making. And the federal scheme always included a carbon tax on home heating fuels. So again... How did that all of a sudden change? Because if it was a concern for people heating their home and a carbon tax in other parts of the country where the federal uh, carbon tax structure was in place, they had the same concerns then. So I guess the question remains, why now?
4: But Patty, we're talking about today how we can help more people get off of oil, which is what this plan will do. And I've always been there. Our plan has been there to protect the environment, to combat climate change, but to put money in people's pockets. And we know that people haven't been able to get off of oil. This is a program to help them get off of oil. We've got an obligation to make sure that everybody can, just not those that can afford it. So this is going to be able to help the people that cannot afford it get off of oil heat and get onto heat pumps, which will then put thousands of dollars in their pockets every year. And on top of the thousands of dollars that we're giving them in child care benefits, that we're helping with the dental plan with rental relief. We've increased CPP and OAS. Look what we've done in daycare. And by the way, the Conservatives voted against all of that. So we don't have slogans. We have solutions and programs that are helping people with their kitchen table issues and their affordable affordability issues
0: with the heat pump program here provincially the most recent announcement of 157 million dollars included direct billing to take charge no upfront costs out of pocket which has kept many people from doing it how does it work on this front would do i bill the government do i have to pay out of pocket and uh, submit receipts for reimbursement how does it work
4: no the new t- if you qualify under the medium to low income this will be basically it's a free heat pump up front and then the uh, the details are very worked out, but yes, for those that qualify, it's a free heat pump up front, and then the cost of installing will be incurred, so you will not be out of pocket if you qualify. And for those that are over that, it'll be, uh, you know, avail of the original program that was out there. And the, uh, the pause on the fuel charge on the home heating oil isn't effective in two weeks, and the $250 signing bonus for our hockey friends that understand signing bonuses, and everybody does, uh, that'll be available when you when you uh, sign up to, to switch to heat pumps. Patty, we know we have to make a difference. I've got a precious little granddaughter, and I look at the change in the environment. And, yeah, we've talked about weather and everything else, but talk to the fishermen. Talk to people that are seeing these storms more frequent. Look at the difference in our ocean temperatures. Like I said, climate change is real. We all have to do better, and this is a way we can make sure that everybody can participate, no matter what your income is.
0: You mentioned dental care. Many people say, well, that was driven by the NDP and the Supply and Confidence Agreement that both parties have entered into. They were very quick in their most recent three-day retreat in Hamilton, Ontario, to bring to the next issue to the forefront, universal pharmacare. Everyone has ever looked at, including the most recent report done by Dr. Eric Hoskins and his teams, point to a whopping big price tag up front, but overall savings down the road for Canadians who are unable to fill their prescriptions. Your personal position on universal pharmacare, because the Liberals have talked about it but haven't acted on it.
4: Well, there has been a pile of projects in Prince Edward Island, and I think that's what you're seeing, Minister Miller and in, in the NDP in their conversations, looking how that is working, what needs to be tweaked, so stay tuned on that regards too, Patty. And look, I just want to let you know why I'm in St. John's, always a pleasure to be here, but I was at the EcoNext conference yesterday and here at m and yesterday and today, and when you look at the future of our province, we have such an opportunity in the renewable energy world, Newfoundland and Labrador, Atlantic Canada, we can be global leaders, and the The enthusiasm in that room was amazing and then when you walk across the street to the mayor's municipalities conference they are on the buzz on that as well so a big thank you to all the mayors and counselors and town clerks they do incredible work in every part of our province every day
0: does the money is announced in the heat pump world keep up with what has been the additional cost for a quality certified heat pump and the all the installation issue has been tricky because you need subcontractors, including electricians be involved in the process which is hard the demand is skyrocketing does this program keep up with the entirety of the cost to purchase a qualified certified heat pump and full-on cost for a, a, a installation
4: that's a great question patty because the research has shown us that twenty two thousand dollars will work for the majority of the the test cases that we looked at look if you've got an old system an old electrical system with 100 amp service yes you have the upgrade and we've seen that yes under this new program that's the extra funds that will be there to help make sure that everybody can switch over. So, you know, that's the reality of older homes, right? And, of course, we've had other programs, your greening home program, uh, you know, where you can apply for better windows or doors and all that type of thing. But this one is going to be easier for people to avail of. All governments, municipal, provincial, federal, we've got a thing of making things too difficult, but this is going to be much easier for people to avail of. No upfront costs for people. Uh, It's basically a free heat pump, and then the cost of installation and all that will be covered covered under the program. So this is good news for everybody. Um, Watch our, my colleagues, my website will be getting out, and and social media will be getting out the details as it comes along. But this is good news for people to get off oil, make their contributions, to a lower carbon footprint and making our country and our province cleaner for decades to come.
0: As the minister responsible for rural economic development, uh, some of which will, of course, be reliant on the fishery and mining and what have you, but also tourism. In your personal opinion, is it time to reopen the Marine Atlantic contract to deal with the sixty-five percent cost recovery model that's currently in place? Because the cost is exorbitant and very likely, given the extraordinary cost for air travel, may keep some people from uh, deciding to come to this province to spend the tourism dollar. In In your opinion should we reopen the marine atlantic contract
4: patty i talked to the officials and the, the great people that run marine atlantic every month so marine atlantic was blocked this summer they were totally full uh so capacity wise they couldn't carry anymore the good news is we have a new ferry coming next summer and that by the way will lower operating costs by millions of dollars uh so it shows how a greener cleaner vessel will lower their costs uh, the affordability issue is always um, on hand. Uh, it is an issue. And i matter of fact, I'm meeting with the new Minister of Transport, Minister Rodriguez. And I can tell you that the board, you know, Murray Hultman and chair of the board, um, they're working diligently of how they can lower costs for people coming back for the price of goods and services and people traveling back and forth.
0: When you say new ferry, cleaner or greener, should that also mean that the clean fuel regulations that are coming to pass and the associated uh, additional costs, with 33 million liters of diesel being burnt by Marine Atlantic uh, annually with their move towards cleaner and greener, should they be exempt from the clean fuel regulations?
4: Well, look, we're seeing that in in the new vessel. It's, you know, basically the clean fuel standards is driving you from unleaded to leaded. Um, we're, I'm excited to see this new vessel. She'll be in port in St. John's when she does. Renard will run around the province, and then it's my understanding she's going to be on the Argentia North Sydney run because that longer run is where she is more economically viable and saves tons of money for people traveling back and forth. I'm hoping we can get more vessels on on board to lower the cost, the operating cost for Marina Atlantic, and then we can really lower the cost for people traveling back and forth. But like I said, this summer, the ferry was blocked. It didn't really impact people coming and going to the province. They were at 100% capacity every day of the sailing, right? And we need to have a conversation about air access, too, someday, Patty. You know, like we need to make sure that we keep our smaller airports alive. Uh, when you look at traveling around Atlantic Canada, I had a meeting in, in Cape Breton a while ago, and And I took the ferry because in order to fly, you had to go from Deer Lake to Toronto and then back to Prince uh, back to Cape Breton. You have to do the same thing. If we're going to truly grow rural economic, rural economies, and when we see the opportunities that we have with wind energy and these critical minerals, these mines of which Newfoundland and Labrador has a huge opportunity, we need to make sure that people have access, and it's air access too. If you're looking to invest here, you need to make sure that you you have to be able to get here. And your workers can get here. So we need to talk about the air access issue, too.
0: Lastly, uh, can you give us an update on the status of the new Disability Canada Pension? When will it be rolled out?
4: The new Disability Canada Pension program is coming. You know what? You got me on that one, but I will get the details, and I will send you a note so you can say I got back to you with the details.
0: I appreciate that, and thanks for your time this morning.
4: Take care, everyone.
0: You too. Thanks, Bye-bye, Maddie. Minister. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Cody Hutchings, the member for Long Range Mountains, the minister, minister responsible for Racoa and Rural Economic Development. Do you want to pick up on anything you heard there, you can do it. Matt Barter about the MUN-AG report is in the queue. Keith Fitzpatrick talked about the six-bed unit in Happy Valley Goose Bay for mental health services and treatment yet to be opened. Those two next, and then you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Matt Barter. You're on the air. Hello, yes, I phoned in to
5: talk about the Auditor General to be put into Memorial University. Sure thing. Yeah, so I've been talking about administrative bloat since back in 2019, and back then I also told for the auditor for, for, for a review among finances.
0: Absolutely, and now you got it. And I doubt you're surprised, just like the folks at the faculty association, the student union. No one is really too surprised. I think the word is probably more likely frustrated.
5: Yes, although i didn't I wouldn't expect it to be as bad as what it was
0: okay, would you like to pick up on anything in particular matt
5: uh yes, um with regard to the 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 we that in the in the auditor general we put um, for the for the for the for the bonuses for the genitive center and teacher, I've um, I've filed an access to information with, with request for that information with MUN. And if they refuse to release it or they redact it, then I've I've had to appeal to the uh, Privacy and Information Commissioner. And if MUN still refuses to release it, then I'll I'll um, I'll take them to the Supreme Court because it's information that's in the public interest. What are, they, what are they trying to protect?
0: We're going to try to follow up with the Privacy Commissioner on some of the things that we were unable or not allowed to see in this most recent report. So where to from here, Matt? What are you going to do with this report yourself for continuing to look at administrative costs, compensation, what you refer to as bloat? What are you going to keep your eye on?
5: Well, I'm going to keep filing at keep filing access for trust, and I'm going to see if my are making the cases that they've that they said they are. Um because there's a lot of areas like for example like using hit head, hit head, hit hundred firms for executive searches. The Auditor General pointed out that it added up to one point one million dollars from from twenty nineteen.
0: Absolutely, and we tried to cover as much ground as we could with the time we had with Dr. Bowes this morning. Is there something in particular that you don't think has been covered widely enough or enough focus on, given the report and the findings of uh, Denise sanrahan
5: Yes, um, I find it disappointing that uh, that the that the pe- that the president Neil Bowes that he that he that he keeps. Whenever people bin up the, 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 the expenses of the former president, his is that he can't comment on former employees. So essentially, there's, a, there's, there's no accountability whatsoever.
0: Fair enough. I mean, accountability is a word that's used all the time when we read these reports, whether it be it. At- you know, Hydro, and now coming up with Oil Co. and Crown Lands, and eventually with the Housing Corporation, and all the reviews that have been done in the past, we can point to it, it grabs you headlines, a few interviews, a few conversations, and then before anyone is held accountable. It kind of gets changed with the new cycle, which I'm going to try my level best to keep following up with the Child Youth Advocate, with the Auditor General, and with other uh, authors of these reports. where We have to know that it wasn't just a uh, 24, 48-hour or, or week-long sting. It's an ongoing effort to implement the appropriate policies and oversight to make sure that these institutions that receive significant government funding are on the right track. Anything else you want to say this morning, Matt?
5: Yes. I, I think the former president by Vi- by Vi- Ann Timmins should be held to account because uh, because she was she was fired from the university for um for ide- for identity fraud and she got over one million dollars um um when when in in sev Shev- when when she left and um and um uh, I, I think if she if she was here when the Auditor General report would, would release I, I take that that people that people would have would have would have told for her would have told for um this disciplinary action or for her to resign.
0: And I suppose that uh issue has been settled and solved and all of these frustrating amounts of money uh, paid out in uh, severance, of course, baked in the contracts. And so I guess we have to figure out not only the rate of pay, but how a public, ser- public servant or public sector employee, how their severance works, because people will talk about Ed Martin and Brian Timmins and others who have had pretty significant golden handshakes, even though there's also been a, a knock on their reputation as they leave their important positions. I appreciate the time, Matt. Thank hey, you. Take care.
5: You too. Bye. All
0: right. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, with the time we have, what would you like me to do here? Uh, line number two. Okay, let's go to line number two. Billy, you're on the air. Line number two. Billy, you're on the air. Billy was on the air. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Lena. You're on the air. Is there something going out the pots or Lena Sampson from Cadroy Valley United? You're on the air put her on toll, too. All right, uh, let's see if we get to break on time, then. So we're on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there. Email address is openline at vocm.com. Okay, so lots to pick apart regarding conversations with... uh, Denise Hanrahan and with Dr. Bowes this morning, and if you'd like to comment on it, you can do it on Twitter or email, but most importantly, you can do it here on the show, including a conversation we just had with Minister Goody Hutchings. Billy's on line number two to talk about that conversation. Who knows what he's going to say, but we'll all find out right after this. Also, the NLT president, uh, Trent Langdon, he's in the queue. Keith Fitzpatrick, we'll get to Keith right away here, talking about the sixth unit uh, mental health uh, facility in Happy Valley Goose Bay, yet to be open. Leader of the official opposition is Tony Wakeham, he's also in the queue, and then lots of time for you. Don't go away. get lost in the music of legendary artists like elton john the beatles and more join claudette barnes every sunday from 12 to 1 p.m and relive fond memories through the power of music with sunday melodies on your vocm welcome back to the show let's try this again let's go to line number three lena sampson you're on the air
6: good day patty good day. how are you
0: oh doing okay how about you
6: oh excellent excellent um, Patty, I just wanted to come on today and let you know that I, I know you were speaking with Marilyn yesterday with regards to the peaceful rally that's going to be happening at the Confederation Building at 11 a.m. this morning. Um, I'm with Cadre Valley United, uh, representing the group that we formed out in the Cadre Valley, and um, we're going to be there with our allies, the Environmental Transparency Committee, the FFAW, um social justice there's going to be a lot of representatives there expressing concerns but showing information as well um truthful information about the impacts that this project is going to be having on the southwest coast of newfoundland and i know throughout this whole process um we as cadre valley have not been uh represented very well um in this in in the whole process and it's concerning so um i traveled down here myself to help uh, support the
0: cause at this moment in time i'll call it the 11th hour because we're anticipating some further decisions and green lights to be offered by the end of this month which is next tuesday so what exactly are you hoping to achieve because we really are up against the next set of decision making gates
6: yeah and i understand that too um we are just trying to I guess push for, for more awareness because there's still a lot of people that don't know the the extent and the severity of the impacts that are going to happen with this project. Um, calling a public review for public inquiry is, is essential at this point. Um, the people, the constituents of the Southwest Coast aren't being listened to. Um, I personally reach out to governmental officials myself and have gotten zero to no response. And that's concerning because, you know, I, I had the opportunity of listening to Goody Hutchings there today um, speaking on behalf of some stuff um, that I find concerning as well. And they are only seeing one side of it and pushing one side of it. Um, but they're so disconnected from the people. They're they're not listening to the concerns. They're not listening to how it's going to have a detrimental impact on their lifestyles. And, yeah, so public a public review is essential at this point.
0: Yeah, and what does public review mean? Because that's, I think, another issue where people might not know exactly what we're talking about. Like prior to Musgrave Falls, we had that joint panel committee, which was that type of intervener and investment status that was granted to so many folks. So I assume that's what you're talking about. I wonder what you make of the fact that that particular panel came up with a lot of areas of concern, and it didn't matter a row of beans at the end of the day because the project eventually got sanctioned. So what do you think would be accomplished with the impact assessment agency, intervenor status, and investment in experts?
6: It'll put a pause on the project. It'll give, it'll give everybody a time to to gather the appropriate information and to, you know, put, put into perspective like what, what needs to be done. It, you know, we're not against green energy. We're not against, you know, bolstering the economy here in Newfoundland. But I said it's it's very, very important that it be done responsibly because right now from what we're seeing and how the government is doing this and just from reviewing the EIS documentation alone – Um, We found significant errors, like questionable, questionable things with regards to the studies, omittances, like it it is concerning. And we need an independent board that can come in and and review it and listen to the concerns, listen to the information that the people have gathered themselves. Um, And these are in people that don't have experience in in these documents, you know, and, and they're finding issues. So, you know, having an independent board that can levy all that stuff and decipher it and and come forth with uh, pros and cons on both sides for both parties. But we we need someone outside of World Energy, the proponent, and and the government, because, as you know, they're they're siding, and and they do support each other, and it's going to be that way. But we need need a board that's going to listen to the people.
0: Where and when would you like people to show up uh, today?
6: We would like them to show up at the Confederation Building. We will be there at 11 a.m., Is the start time, and any and all support of anybody that's concerned or has questions about what's going to happen um, would be greatly appreciated.
0: Appreciate the time this morning, Lena. Thank you.
6: Thanks, Patty. One thing before I leave, before I go, I just want to say that I personally reached out to the government um, via email with regards to getting public consultation out in our area back in May 30th. Um, I did call out Andrew Fury and Scott Reid and Goody Hutchings and a number of others, and I haven't gotten any response back from them. So when a government official gets on and says that they are concerned and they're listening to their constituents, I find that concerning because I've been personally disregarded. My voice has not been listened to with respect to our concerns on the southwest coast.
0: I appreciate your voice and your concerns this morning.
6: Yeah, thank you.
0: You're welcome, Lena. Take care and good luck.
7: You too. Bye now.
0: All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Ricky, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Not too bad. How about you?
7: Not bad, my friend. Not bad. Patty I just called this morning and just passed my opinion on uh, Justin Trudeau, what he was talking about yesterday. Uh, heat pumps and everything else that for the uh, people of the Atlantic provinces. Uh, before I get into that, though, he's talked about carbon tax, and and, and I'm sure you're an knowledgeable man. You can correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't mind being wrong. He says that uh, a lot of countries in the world are paying carbon tax. We in Canada, we have a population of roughly 38, 000, 38 million people in that vicinity. I think the state are somewhere around 340. They don't pay carbon tax. Mexico is about 152 million. They don't pay carbon tax. Nobody in the South America or Central don't pay carbon tax, so we're the only country in the uh, Western Hemisphere that's being carbon tax, Mr. Trudel. The other thing, sir, he talked about is uh, giving out free heat pumps to low and medium income families. What about, um, Petty, and I'll use your name and my name, I'm not going to be disrespectful to you, but I did hear you talk about your families from time to time. I don't think me or you are medium to low income families. So he talks about an interest free loan so we can pay back so for argument's sake, let's take someone who has a fair-sized house that's going to need four or five heat pumps. And is that 55 or 60 years of age? And they got the uh, oil-burning furnace, hot water radiation. Do you think they're going to live long enough to see uh, see uh, money coming back
0: because they give up the oil? That's an impossible question to answer. Uh The population of Canada just surged past 40 million uh, people for the very first time. There's a laundry list of countries in the world that actually pay a carbon tax. And they're not all south of the border, even though that does include uh, Argentina and Chile. Uh, China actually has a carbon tax, Colombia, Denmark, 27 countries in the EU, Japan, Kazakhstan, Korea, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Singapore, South Africa, Sweden, the UK, Ukraine. So we're not alone. Whether or not the current way that the government has structured carbon tax is the best way or is reasonable or is manageable or is effective, that's up for debate, 100%. But there's tons of countries in the world that have a price on pollution.
7: But uh, uh, let's get back to the heat pumps again. Okay, thank you, Paddy, for correcting me on the carbon tax. God bless you. Uh, No Uh, problem. It's it's
0: not a matter of correcting. I'm just throwing it out there for the purpose of conversation.
7: Yeah, but... uh, so, all those heat pumps that he's given out to, and, and I'm not being disrespectful towards any family, you know, I, I wish everybody was doing as so good as me and you. But, who's going to pay for all those free heat heat pumps?
0: At this point, the federal government.
7: Yeah, but where's the federal government going to get their money from? From the working class, like people like me and you. Well, they don't so, have their
0: own money, of course. That's right, it's all our money. That's
7: right. Yeah. Yeah, and, so and like you said, I'm just throwing this out of a conversation also. So at the end of the day, the people who are in the upper categories of income, those are people who are going to be taxed and have to pay for all this.
0: Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, on the heat pump world, for the individual payer of their hydro bill or to fill up their oil tank, there is unquestionably savings to be had with installation of mini-splits and or heat pumps. I know because I put a couple of mini-splits in the house, and we are absolutely achieving savings. So as much as the federal government is going to have to foot the bill for upfront cost, it comes with a savings for me. So sovereign debt is important. Someone's going to have to pay the bill. But to be bluntly honest, I'm much more uh, inclined to deal with my own finances, worry about my own money, than I am for day-to-day operations and borrowing at the federal government level. I pay too much in tax, like everyone else there. But if there's savings and long-term savings for individuals, it can become quite attractive. You know, and then you can add in whatever people think is the importance associated with emissions and what have you. But there's a legitimate financial savings to be had here, which I think makes it really attractive. People could be climate change activists or what have whatever motivation under the sun. But me and my ability to save money, that's pretty attractive to me.
7: Oh yeah, no, no, I support your net. Uh, like i like I, I threw out the question of age and and. As you're aware, of, 99% of the people in rural Newfoundland of, 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 up, of up in years is, is, is burning oil. So, I mean, that's why I said, how long are they going to have to live to, to pay some of this stuff back and see and see, and see uh, profit?
0: Cost recovery is based on a lot of things. There's a lot of variables, which makes that pretty impossible to answer. Age of the home, the type of windows and insulation and all the rest that goes into having your home nice and tight and warm and cozy. So, I don't think I can answer that. Cost recovery on my mini split looks like around 35, 36 months for me personally. So, that's a pretty attractive cost recovery for me. And this, I put it in before I even had any access to the money of these big government programs, which would have had further savings. So, cost recovery is a floating target. For me, on the mini split, the purchase of and the installation of, it'll be three years or less for me to get all that money back based on savings from my heat bill.
7: That depending on how much it costs you put it in, but if, you, if it's going to cost somebody some somewhere somewhere between seventeen and twenty thousand dollars, are going to be a long time recovering that dollar, right?
0: Well, that money, for in large part, is covered by someone else, not them. Even though, look, like, I, we all will concede the point that government doesn't have their own money. <laughs> I mean, we all know no, it. It's no, my man, money. It's right. your money.
7: Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I mean, whether they give you an interest-free loan or not, you still got to pay it back.
0: Yes, and some of these monies are straight-up freebies. Like, for instance, the most recent government program of $157 million, you don't even pay out of pocket. You can build Take Charge NL directly. So there's some pretty attractive options out there that come with little to no cost up front, little to no cost insofar as repaying a loan. There's big, like the Canada Greener Homes Grant. It's $5,000 or up to $5,000 with no strings attached for any repayment. So it depends on the program you avail of. depends on the... Uh, the uh, size and the age of the home and the windows and the insulation of what you buy, mini splits or that's heat right. pumps or electric furnaces. So there's no one catch-all answer to that question.
7: No, no, I and I agree with you. I support you 100%. But the other thing with the oil furnace that, they didn't, that they're not saying is that in order to get the, uh, the full rebates from the federal government and the provincial government, you have to remove the oil furnace from your house completely. You do, yeah. That's That's, good for me. that's a fact. You're not saying that. If you don't remove the oil furnace, you're only going to get 5000 bucks.
0: Well, that's part of all the programs. So, I mean, like everything else in this world, you got to know what you're getting yourself into as opposed to just saying, oh, this sounds good. You know what's the most effective thing on this front for me and my experience and the people that I've put on? As opposed to trying to figure it all out with Newfoundland Power or Take Charge or the provincial government, the very best way to understand these programs, insurance implications and all the rest, is talk to one of the companies that sell and install. They'll do it for free. They will walk you through what might work for your house and what it means for potential savings and potential cost recovery and insurance implications and removing the oil furnace and removing the oil tank. They are the go-to. That's what I do to everybody who asks me. As opposed to say, here's the government email address, just so I frustrate them to no end because it's hard to get a response from the government sometimes in a timely fashion. The companies. That's what I tell people to do all the time. The questions you have about how it works, where it works, what's best for you, and all the other implications. That's what I put people on to. Phone the companies. They will walk you through it free of cost.
7: And I agree with you, sir. I had it done. And this is why I can make comments on, on the way I'm doing it. The other thing, and I'll let you go then. I, I listened to uh, Goody Hutchings there. I'd just like to know with ladies too, because got I guarantee she's got somebody listening. Where has she been to the last couple of years? When uh, one liberal member in Newfoundland was voting against the carbon tax, the rest stood firm with Justin Trudeau. And she talks about satisfying her constituents. We have the Port-a-Port uh, Port Peninsula over there, which I know is not in her district, but she's going to listen to his constituents and the people of Newfoundland. I, I'm not against windmills. I, I've seen them all over the world. Uh, and they're good. But uh, wh- why isn't she standing up and listening to some of the concerns some of the people have over on the west coast of Newfoundland in the Calderon Valley, and the South West Coast?
0: Well, I suppose it's, you know, in many respects... I think we should all thank our lucky stars that we don't have too much federal government intervention overreach on things like this. We've just heard the the Supreme Court talking about federal government overreach when it comes to things like pipelines. So if it's provincial jurisdiction, I'm happy enough with that. I know people want the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada to take it on, but at some point we all have to ask ourselves the question, how much say do we want to have in the hands of the, uh, the federal government for provincial matters? So I get your point. But that's to me, is part of that slippery slope issue. Before long, if we keep making these pleas, we will have nothing but federal government oversight and authority for a lot of stuff that we really want them to stay away from.
7: Well, I like to support you, dear, but, I mean, the guy we got there now is sticking his nose in a lot of provincial stuff anyway. It's his way of the highway.
0: That's the way it works, isn't it? And we don't Absolutely. want that, and that's what people don't like. So I guess we can't have it both ways. It's either we no. want them in or we want them out because you can't be half-pregnant. No,
7: you you got that right. Anyway, Patty, thank you for your time, and you have a great day, buddy.
0: You too, man. All the best, Ricky. Okay. Never. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Let's get a break in, and Dave will tell me who we're going to right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right. Let's go to line number one. Graham, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Hello? Hello? Good morning. Good morning.
8: Uh, hi, hi, are we Are we connected here or something? Can you hear me? Yes, I've got you.
0: Yeah, you're on the air.
8: Okay, my name is Graham, and I'm calling to you uh, this morning regarding the... uh, Tom Rose was on yesterday talking about Stephenville, the airport, and uh, all the things that are happening in Stephenville. Um, I've been following this uh, airport thing for two years, and uh, I have to tell you... uh, that I am uh, more than just frustrated with the lack of information and so forth that uh, is available on this, this whole thing. Firstly, uh, what we, there's a group of us that are uh, concerned about this and uh, we've done our research and homework and um, Mr. Diamond is certainly not what he claimed to be when he was introduced by uh, Tom Rose back in 2021. Um, and in September, on September 9th in 2021, uh, Mr. Rose made a grand announcement, introducing Mr. Diamond to the people of Stephenville who were uh, ready to, you know, welcome anybody that was going to make some sort of investment. Uh, at the time, uh, Mr. Diamond claimed he was going to put in hundreds of millions of dollars and revitalize the airport, so forth and so on. Since that time, there has been absolutely nothing appear at this airport, nothing whatsoever. There are no uh, flights of any kind. The last uh, airline customer they had was PAL, which closed up in January of uh, 2021. Uh, Every airline that has ever attempted to service Stephenville in the last 20 years uh, has closed up and left. There's a reason for that. And uh, the airlines are not stupid. They know their markets uh, just as well as anybody else. And unfortunately, airlines cannot um, survive if they continue to service what they call thin routes. Now, we have a a population in Newfoundland which is thin. Uh, Once you get outside uh, St. John's, it's hard to find anything. You know, it's a very small population. And uh, the population on the west coast of Newfoundland is about less than 90,000 right now. And uh, there are three operating airports. St. Anthony, which still operated by uh, Transport Canada because they couldn't divest it, and Deer Lake and Stephenville, of course. Now, in in, in the terms of, uh, of competition between Deer Lake and Stephenville for these aer- the, the, the airport business, uh, Deer Lake has certainly won the, the, the marketing effort because they did a much better job. Unfortunately, uh, for all of us here in Stephenville, the only thing that, uh, the only service that has uh, uh, been seen here in the last uh, few years is summer service, and I can testify to the fact. I'm 81 years old, and um, I've been flying around the, well, the world, but the, the flying around Newfoundland for a long, long time. And uh, I, I can attest to the, back to the days when things were subsidized and uh, Air Canada had two jet flight, you know, two DC-9 flights a day here and all that stuff. The unfortunate thing that people don't realize is that these flights were all heavily subsidized by the federal government back in the day. And a lot of people uh, think that things are going to return to that. There, it's never going to happen, Patty and unfortunately uh, we have to uh, uh, be satisfied that we've we've got airline service here given and giving you know in Deer Lake uh, a large a very, i forget the exact number but it's a very large number of people in Canada that have to drive at least an hour and a half to get a regularly scheduled airline flight it's just a fact of life in canada okay and, and but the expectations, uh, I think, have to change. People have to, you know, understand why this airport has failed. And, and unfortunately, it, it really is a matter of business.
0: Yeah, it's economic uh, activity. I'm- which um, I, guess I guess is I guess the, the upside. Promise. You know, with the potential for a big salt mine in St. George's and the potential for wind to hydrogen and Port of Port Peninsula and other places, with the potential for other economic growth opportunities on the West Coast, that's all that's ever going to drive commercial air traffic. That and nothing but. You know, tourism will have a dollop of input on Thank those Patty. issues, but until you that's see. <coughs> all right, go ahead.
8: No, but that's my point, Patty. I know. Um, the All the commercial uh, activity that has been announced lately with GH2. I'm, I'm quite very familiar with GH2. And uh, also uh, the, the recent announcement with the salt mine. None of that was known in uh, September of 2021. Now, I, just as an example, um, I sent you an email yesterday with this in it, but I'm going to say it again today. Uh, if uh, We have a rink here that's called the Dome, And um, you say it was valued at $8 million, and you woke up tomorrow morning and found out that your council had sold it to a private, unknown citizen for $1.1 million for a for-profit enterprise. So what would be your reaction? That's exactly what happened to the airport, except the town council didn't own it. Uh, The board, uh, in my opinion, has, you know, they've been so negligent in this thing. There has been absolutely zero communication from the board as to what they were trying to do or trying to achieve. Uh, they've uh, had uh, very uh, various uh, people that have written to them and with reasonable questions. For example, Carl Diamond promised two years ago he was going to have uh, three or four airlines servicing Stephenville in, 19, in 2022. Um, of course, none of this stuff has come to pass. It's just and and this stuff about drones and aerospace. Uh, Patty, I, I lived in Ottawa for 27 years, and I've been active in aviation for for a long, long time. Uh, no one and, and and Diamond lives just outside of Ottawa. He lives in Carlton Place, and no one in the aviation industry. And I'm talking about you know, engineering types and high positions in major uh, uh, military contractors, for example. And uh, no one's ever heard of Diamond. He claimed he was established in the aerospace industry and all that. It's garbage. Um, We uh, researched Mr. Diamond back in 2021, and we could find no... Um, indication of any work uh, or any any business that he claimed he had that was in the aerospace business, you know. He claimed he had uh, designs of jets and so forth in, uh, in wind tunnel testing and all kinds of crazy stuff, Tiff, uh, drones, electric uh, drones with uh, cargo capacities of 52,000 pounds. I mean, I, I talked to these guys in Ottawa, and uh, I, I, I have one friend who's very highly placed in one of the major uh, um, military contractors in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I the guy just sort of shook his head and smiled when I told him all this stuff. So, unfortunately, now, uh, what we've seen is a miracle save in terms of financing the thing. They found a guy by the name of Mr. Popple out in Saskatoon. So... To get it to get the financing, what essentially this has been, Patty, is a leveraged buyout. And we all know what happens to leveraged buyouts. You go in, you pay one point million or one point one million, you pay off the debt, you break up the enterprise, and you sell off the assets. I mean, Carl Icahn wrote the book on that. So that's what we're left with here, and uh, it's very, very unfortunate. Uh, I and several other people put in. Uh, Complaints under the Municipal Conduct Act against the uh, the mayor, and uh, of course I, I put mine in in April of this year, and uh, I uh, have, I watched the council meeting last night, at which it was announced that the council has, or the the complaints have been dismissed. They didn't say what who, which complaints. There are several. Uh, however, uh, that's unfortunate too. But uh, they did appoint outside investigators. I am not party to any of their findings and so forth, but I do know the information that I gave to them uh, was certainly uh, appropriate. So, fine, if these things get... The unfortunate thing about the Municipal Conduct Act is that it gives the power of judge, jury, and executioner to the council themselves. It's, It's just... Ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it's Fox and Henhouse stuff. Uh, every single one of the points you've made there about the town of Stephenville, the council, Mayor Rose, Carl Diamond, those every single one of those issues has been broached on this show and asked directly of both gentlemen. And we'll continue to do so. Like, I mean, we asked about the town council and Mayor Rose. So I don't even know how this is not a conflict to sit as next officio on the airport authority board and be the mayor and know the deal is coming and not do anything about it to benefit the revenue stream of the town. So... Exactly. I mean, These are issues that we've broached repeatedly here on the show and will continue to do so. Uh, very quickly, because we just cleared 11.01. Final word to you, Graham.
8: Well, I just hope, Patty, that people start to realize around here when, when unfortunately, when uh, Diamond was introduced here, he was introduced as a man of money and uh, who was going to save the airport, invest hundreds of millions of dollars. And the CBC articles, they published five or four or five articles about Mr. Diamond with the facts. The, mat- the fact of the matter is that the guy is not what he says he was. He didn't have any money to invest at the time, and uh, now he's he's leveraged the airport, and uh, uh, the whole thing just smells to high heaven. Yet Tom Rose was the de facto partner for Mr. Diamond in the whole thing. Tom Rose was the, uh, the, the spokesman. Um, unfortunately, Diamond, he won't talk to the media because you ask him questions that he can't answer. That's why he doesn't talk to you.
0: we've had him on twice. We invited him on this week. I think we're going to have him early next week. And every one of the questions that you have are the same ones that I have and that I will ask directly of Mr. Diamond. Yeah.
8: Well, that's great. Ask him what, who the, we've been, we've been talking to airlines. Airlines are not coming to Stephenville. That's it.
0: Certainly not now, unless there's a boost in economic activity. Why would they? Uh, Graham, I'm late for the news. They're flagging me off, but I appreciate the time. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Stay in touch. Take care. Okay, there we go. Appreciate everyone's patience this morning. Busy program. Trent Langdon from the NLTA. uh, Tony Wakeham, leader of the official opposition. Keith up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And then we're talking to Tammy about the housing crisis and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation
9: if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day
0: have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go to line number seven say good morning to the pc member for Seaville port port he's the leader of the official opposition that's tony wakeham good morning tony you're on the air
10: hey good morning patty
0: welcome to the show appreciate the patience been a busy one
10: yeah, you've had a busy show, and obviously we've had a busy week in the House of Assembly, and uh, lots of things that have happened this past week in the in the House of Assembly, including the uh, focus on the affordable housing and the uh, challenges we have in getting answers to questions on exactly what the plan is, what's been done, what's been approved, uh, what's been renovated. Uh, the government certainly is, has created a lot of confusion around that issue.
0: They have. And some of the confusion... I'll get your take on this. Some of the confusion may indeed be dealing with the complexity of the issue. That does not by any stretch of the imagination, excuse the so-called misspeaking, the difference between 750 units versus 11, nor does it excuse the, uh, the state of the emergency shelters and about $5 million per annum to for-profit emergency shelter operators. But there is a complexity here that gets sometimes lost in the shuffle. Sometimes we use, you know, like it's, it's akin to reading the headline and not the content of the story. It's kind of 100,000 feet above, sky, above sea level when we've got to get our, food, our feet much closer to the ground to deal with this.
10: Well, that's why it's so important when you're talking about these critical issues that ministers of the crown have it right. You know, they get briefed by their officials. When the uh, minister of housing stands up and talks about 750 homes have been built, that gives people hope. When and then when asked about where they're located, doubles down, say, "Well, they're all over the province." When the deputy premier turns around the scripted video and talks about 750 new homes being built. It's the same thing. You know, to me, ministers of the Crown have a responsibility to be able to come out in public, speak to the public, and reassure people about exactly what's happening and how it's being done. And the fact that they would actually send people to a shelter that was deemed not fit to live in, that's, that's just not acceptable.
0: Yeah. You know, Because then a lot of this is kind of after-the-fact stuff. So it's after the fact where Rob Antle and Ariana Kellen do some investigative work to talk about where the 750 are. It's after the fact when someone is taken from or offered a space in a shelter uh, from the tent encampment to then see the pictures of what the state of the place looks like and the non-existent uh, inspection prior to, and then the cleaners are sent in. It feels a lot like we're reacting all the time. Not so sure where proactivity falls into government operations these days, because a lot of it feels reactionary, whether it be from housing or health care or virtually anything.
10: Well, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, when you think about how a, how a housing plan was announced eight years ago, or back in 2017, sorry, and here we are today, uh, this week only finding out that there's a housing strategy announced. We've seen the same thing in healthcare with a human resource health plan. Uh, we were told that they had a human resource health plan only to find out that it didn't exist. And now it's an RFP yell around the street, yes, to get a human resource health plan, which is desperately needed in our province and one of the key components of the health accord.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But then, you know, it's kind of the appeasement plan sometimes, too, isn't it? Like, Just look at the health court one more time. The permanent central Newfoundland obstetrics units to be in Grand Falls, Windsor. Now we're told that sometime this fall, hopefully before Christmas, there will be a full-time staffed obstetrics unit in Gander as well. So you wonder where the political winds blow and how they jibe with important documents like the Health Accord, like the McKinsey Report, like the Green Report, like whatever else we're unable to see from Rothschild or what have you. Because guiding principles are only effective if they're here too. If they're not, then why even entertain the exercise?
10: Well, that, that's the whole point. If government is prepared to, to produce documents and reports, the people of the province ought to be able to see them. We shouldn't be hiding reports from the people of the province. They should have an opportunity to see those reports and understand what's in them. Obviously, as we all know, it's the people's money that are paid for these reports, for the money flowing into the provincial government. And I firmly believe that every report that the government receives needs to be released to the people of the province.
0: Why not? I mean, the Green Report was released publicly unredacted. McKinsey was a million-dollar report that was way overdue, and there. Look, and I suppose I could pos- possibly get myself in trouble, but they're a highly dubious operation to begin with. Then the Rothschild report, which cost us a big uh, lump of money, I think maybe five million dollars, and no chance to see anything therein. You know, I mean, I respect governments want to protect commercial sensitivities and personal information and those types of things, but. I mean, if Rothschild had anything beneficial to say, because unless we get to see it, then consultants' reports kind of feels like political cover. You know, well, the consultant told us to do this, and they're experts in the field. Or the consultant said, don't do that, and we listen to them. Well, we don't know what you're going to do based on the report because we haven't seen it.
10: Totally. And uh, this week, of course, the university author general's report was released. So part of of her challenge, the part of that report was redacted. But and in terms of the Auditor General's report at Memorial University and what we could be doing immediately, when I become premier and we form government, I will ensure that every agency that receives significant funding from government goes through the budget process and the estimate process. We sit around after the budget was announced in the House of the Assembly and go through department line-by-line line budgets with them. Here, we, when we come to health, we have a $4 billion expenditure under the health board, and we don't get into the details. So not only is it the health board that should be going through this estimate process, the university should go through this estimate process. The Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation should go through this process. These are large organizations funded by government that we should have this budget estimate process in place so they can come in and talk about their budget, talk about what they did, and talk about how the people's money is going to be spent.
0: Tony, if if and when there's an election, the Premier says there won't be one call before Christmas, if and when your party is successful the next go-around, I've been saying this. It's time to get down to the brass tacks, remove the left hand and the right hand being in two different ballparks, and line by line work like we do when we look at estimates for the government's budget, line by line evaluation of the agencies, boards and corporations, line by line about government transfer dollars to Memorial University, Corps, Genesis, anybody else, because until we know exactly how we can justify even ten dollars out the door when we, you know, just say, okay, four billion dollars for health, check, out the door it goes. We need to do much, much better. Whether we change the way we act in the House of Assembly, create the required committees to mimic the estimates work, and really go through these budgets much more carefully than we do. Would that be something that the PCs would commit to? Because that's been glaringly absent.
10: 100%, because I've been talking about this on the whole time I've been on the campaign trail. And to be honest, Patty, I think many of these organizations would welcome that opportunity, would give them an opportunity to come in and present their estimates in, in an estimates just like we do with every government department. I sit down and go line by line, because in reality, if you can't justify your expenditure, then why are you spending it?
0: <laughs> Excellent question. And please, we have to do away with the coming up to the end of the fiscal year, March 31st, governments exhaust whatever budget was afforded to them so they don't get a slash for the next year. Gotta stop. That has got to stop the end. Uh, last one, Tony, before I let you go. Are you or anyone representing your party going to be at the Mr. Polia backs the tax rally tonight? If so, why?
10: Oh well, Patty, I, I won't be there myself because as I'm talking to you now, I'm pulled over on the side of the road on my way back to my district. I've been uh, away from my district for more than three weeks now, and this is the first opportunity I've got to go back. I had planned to come back to my district long before the polyev event, and I need to get back here and get on the ground and that's where my focus is right now.
0: Are you sending anybody?
10: I would think that there would be other people there, but that's up to each of the individual members of caucus.
0: Appreciate the time, Tony. Safe travels. Thank you, baby. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Tony Wakin, okay, PC member of Stephenville Port-A-Port, Port, and, of course, the leader of the official opposition. Uh, NLT President Trent Langdon is next. Trent, I promise you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. So good morning to the President of the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Good morning, Trent. You're on the air.
11: Hey, good morning, Paddy. Good to see you again.
0: Good to have you on. And I guess, once again, thank you for your patience. It's been a barn burner here this morning.
11: Yeah, no problem. No problem. You owe me one. (laughs)
0: There you go.
11: Yeah, no, I just I just wanted to call in on a couple couple fronts. Uh, we've had some significant uh, acknowledgements and accolades for some teachers in this province, with the premiers' awards, prime ministers' awards, and uh, a teacher in uh, in Nain uh, receiving a uh, uh, Native and Northern Awards. So, you know, those types of awards go over very well uh, uh, for the individual, but it just shows that the quality of teaching we have in the province uh, amidst the, uh, in many ways, a crisis that we're experiencing.
0: I've read all the winners, and congratulations to all. I'd like to dig in just a little bit to the uh, awards. Prime Minister's Award is an innovative teaching. You know, the two teachers, I believe, from Waterford Valley Junior High or High School, talking yeah. about carving out an hour where children can pursue what they're actually interested in. And this would be most important for the so-called gifted student, the one with the exceptionalities that are bored at school, don't want to go to school, aren't challenged at school. But now all of a sudden, they're coming to school, they're motivated, they're helping their peers, they're exploring what might be next in their life beyond high school. That, to me, is so far and away from the traditional approach to in-your-desk and reading and writing and arithmetic and other things we do. You know, to explore the curious mind, there's the one surefire way to engage a student.
11: Yeah, and, and I obviously they found a way and found something that worked. Uh, I know both of those, uh, both those ladies, they do phenomenal work and um, very impressed with their thinking outside the box mentality. Sometimes you got to push the limits a little bit to uh, to get things done. Uh, they saw a model that worked and they proved it. And uh, now hopefully this is a precedent uh, for, for other parts of the province now to, to bite on and uh, to really connect with those kids who, who otherwise would, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, fall through the cracks. So that's, you know, very pleased to see th- those types of, of approaches.
0: What ability do teachers have to do that, to think outside the box? You know, is there that wiggle room or leeway afforded to them, or is it a case-by-case basis based on the administration? Because I would imagine a lot of teachers feel like they have a routine and a core mandate that if they don't satisfy that and nothing but that, then maybe there's a bit of hell to pay. So where does that leeway look, or how does it work for teachers? Because if you're just a rote machine, you're probably not maximizing your own potential as a teacher and or maximizing the potential of your students.
11: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, bottom line are uh, the most likelihood of any success in any of our buildings is when you know when, when you teach the, the core curriculum but also you get those learning experiences that go above and beyond and teachers are doing that uh, all the time uh, trying to find ways to incorporate the outdoors incorporate technology and 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 try to find new ways to engage because you know full well years ago you went to school that was your prime opportunity to to, to find new ideas and, and, and engage whereas right now there's so many things at the fingertips of kids that takes their attention that you got to find ways to, to engage them uh, within the in the walls of school and, and outside as well so uh yeah teachers are, are pushing the limits in that regard all the time to try and find ways uh, our administrators who are also part of our union obviously uh, are, are fully supportive of of, uh, of any way we can connect with children uh many times we focus on those children that may not have uh, the supports they need uh, you know and are meeting with deficits and so on but sometimes uh our, our you know for lack of a better phrase, our average kids or uh, our kids who you would anticipate would be strong learners are are, uh, are, are finding difficulty because they're either bored or um, or they're having other issues within their life that uh, disconnect them from school. So, really positive to see these types of approaches.
0: Let's dig in over a couple of the key pieces or teeth of the hidden reality campaign. What do people need to know? Yeah, yeah. What are we trying to find out?
11: So, Patty, bottom line, you know, we're we're in a situation in this province where. Uh, Education is one of the largest budget lines in in the province, but yet it's not getting the attention it needs. Uh, We need need a complete overhaul, really, of of how we're resourcing our our, our rooms right now. Uh, I'm actually on the West Coast right now. I'm just about to uh, visit a school here in Meadows. Uh, and I've been visiting several schools as I come across. Part of it, my job right now is to visit schools and to get a feel for what's going on on the ground. And, and, and ultimately, we got a situation where teachers are, are extremely frustrated, uh, even though we just started off the talk here with, with some success stories. Uh, more often than not, teachers are, are overwhelmed, uh, the class sizes they have. Uh, and I hear more about composition, you know, the learning needs. And, and we've talked about this many times before. But uh, and, and another significant piece of the hidden reality, Patty, in this province is is the amount of aggression and violence that's going on in our schools towards teachers and uh i've uh you know in recent weeks uh, i've had way too many examples of discussions i've had with teachers where they've ended up in hospital rooms they've had uh, facial injuries they've had uh, significant uh, physical and emotional scarring uh, and and i hear workplace and all doing their ad saying that uh, uh, you know injuries hurt the most at home you know i hear this regularly on the ocm and so on and uh when people think of the school system, do, do people actually think that teachers are not getting uh, are not getting hurt in the classroom when they actually are? And that's that's the worrisome piece. If, if this kind of thing were happening in an office or a workspace, uh, it, it wouldn't be permissible. But right now, it, it's happening uh, on the regular, and it's that piece, along with the needs of, of the children in the classes, uh, it's, uh, the school system is, is is under immense fire right now.
0: The student population has grown a little bit. You know, that's a very good sign. I think it's somewhere in and around 65 60, 66,000 students yeah, uh, yeah. in the K-12 system. Now with the issue regarding infrastructure, you know, it's fine to have new bricks and mortar and comfortable surroundings and, you know, some of the modern, innovative uh, ideas being incorporated. What do we need to do to satisfy this sub-teacher, full-time teacher, and the expanded student headcount, and the new schools? Because we talk about expanding the number of seats at the med school, expanding the number of seats at the registered nurses school. How are we going to satisfy the need, realistically, inside the world of education? Yeah, that,
11: that's uh, that's certainly a lot of questions, Batty. We we're in a situation here where we've I really do think we've got to reignite some excitement around what it means to be a teacher. Right now, we have people trained or choosing not to be teaching because of the pressures and the stressors that are in there. Um, so to reignite, to to fully resource it in such a way that people feel supported in their classrooms, uh, but also to do uh, a recruitment plan that includes Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and and teaching and training people where they are. And uh, again, I as I mentioned to you before. I, I was in Nain there about a month ago right now. And who better than to teach in Nain than someone from Nain? You know, let's build, let's work with individuals from those communities to, to train them, to give them some incentives to come back and, and to live there once they've been trained and stay. They're the ones that are going to stay, not not that one-off here and there. There's, there's a, a, an occasion where you might get a, a, a come from a way to come in and stay, but more often than not, people are going to stay where they grew up. And uh, it's that kind of investment. But I, I'm i not seeing the investment in education right now that needs to be. Uh, uh, we're hearing a lot about homelessness. We're hearing a lot about health care. We, we get it. But uh, yeah, not often. Heard you say, Paddy, that if we get education right, everything else will will fall into place. That's a line I've used, by the way, so that's a compliment to you. But I agree with you 100%. If we get education right, um, all of these other things will fall in place.
0: I don't want to get into behavior modification or any of this nonsense, but I wonder what the difference is, how the pendulum has swung regarding the appetite for people to want to be teachers, which was a very, and is a very respected profession. You know, job security pretty decent pay all those things because when i was a kid if the teacher or the principal or the vice principal called home i was immediately in some form of trouble based on the severity of what i had done at school now it's kind of been the the exact opposite is how dare you question my child i wonder if that makes teachers just not want to bother with that unfortunate engagement and or to think that you know what i'm not getting involved in that because it's really two different things my father would say what did you do let's talk about it you're in trouble now versus how dare you I wonder what that means for people's want to be teacher.
11: Yeah, I I think that certainly impacts where uh, teachers have always been, been under a microscope or been living in the fishbowl. Certainly in smaller towns, I remember years ago, first when you started teaching, if you wanted to even uh, you know buy uh, so, some alcohol or something on the weekend for your own personal use, and then uh, you, you would be hesitant to buy it in the community and that kind of thing. Uh, so you know that it's that's the reality of it. It's a highly respected position. And, and as a result, you should be held accountable. I agree 100%. But, uh, the pressures that come with social media pressures, where it's easy to call a person out without having all the information, uh, there's often discussion on vocm around how people are accused of things when you know uh when it may not be, may actually be true uh and that uh, they don't have the full story before uh, before or actually going to the source i should say to define what, what the issue is we've always encouraged parents if you have a concern with the teacher bring it to the teacher first uh then bring it to the administration if you don't get a resolution uh, we want to work with families you know our goal is, is to and we care so much about the children we want this to be a good experience i, I when, when you see, when I see teachers crying, where they want to do more but they feel so much pressure to, and they and they feel like they're buckling as a result of the pressure on them from whether it's from society or from just the workload. I, I agree. I think that's part of the reason why some people are choosing not to, not to get into the profession.
0: Yeah, and the next time we can talk about school safety, which I think is still a big looming question. And there's lots to discuss inside the envelope of education, as usual. But we appreciate the time. We're off to the news. Trent, talk again soon.
11: Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Take care. Bye bye. Trent Langdon, president of the NLTA. Keith is up in Happy Valley Goose Bay to talk about a mental health unit. We're talking about the housing crisis. Then we're going to speak with the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. That's Bernie Davis. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's do it. Line number six. Good morning, Keith Fitzpatrick. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? How's the sweaty ear? Do you what? Your sweaty ear from being on hold for so long. <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome back to the show. Busy Friday. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the six-bed unit for mental health treatment and services in Happy Valley Goose Bay. When was that first announced? What's the status today?
12: That was announced in June 2019, that they were going to build it. A tender was issued in June of 2020. It's been built and ready since 2022, and they're hoping to open it in November, finally.
0: So do we actually know what they've hired for staff and what staff uh, is going to look like inside this unit?
12: Nothing that's been concretely said. The the reasons for the constant delays was they were saying they had staffing issues. They couldn't get the staff to actually staff these six units.
0: And what does staffing look like? Are we talking about psychiatric nurses, a psychologist or two, a a psychiatrist? Who's supposed to be the staff? Do you know?
12: That was the staffing that they talked about originally was going to have dedicated social workers, mental health counselors, addiction workers, psychiatrists, you know, the, the full gambit of mental health workers that know how to help people with mental health issues versus just random nurses.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, there's very specific healthcare training required to be a mental health professional, obviously, to save the patently obvious. The number okay, so that's an issue. Staffing is always going to be an issue in healthcare, but then we're also talking about the number of beds because I think I, I don't want to mischaracterize what you said, but something along the lines where you could walk out your front door and before you get to the corner, you might be able to run into six people who could occupy those beds. So it's underbuilt.
12: Oh, it is majorly underbuilt. You got to look at the finance department has a population estimator that they talk about for each regional health authority. Well, now zone. For Labrador, it, according to the finance department, 36,000 people are handled by the labrador Grenfell zone, which includes all of Labrador and the Northern Peninsula and Newfoundland. So you've got six beds for all these people. Like, I, you, you quoted me pretty much perfectly. I could leave my front door and fill that before I get to the end of my street. I could probably fill it two times. Uh, mental health, as we all know, and addictions issues in Labrador are huge. Uh, I did an access to information request for uh, different things, including how many emissions in Lab West for mental health, which they couldn't answer, but how many mobile crisis response units happened since it came here. The numbers were staggering. We had 488 calls to the mobile crisis unit in Labrador West alone. It doesn't include Goose Bay, doesn't include Northern Peninsula, doesn't include the rest of Labrador. 308 of them were for emotionally disturbed persons called after hours And they weren't even appropriate to attend, apparently. And then 180 were direct responses by the crisis unit, which, of course, as we know, is a counselor, mental health worker, and police. So 488 calls since 2019 in Labrador West alone for people who are suffering severe mental health crises at risk to hurting themselves or others.
0: And that's only tallying up the people who actually call, not the folks who actually found themselves in crisis but did nothing but, you know, suffer in silence or in the shadows, not knowing where to turn or what to do. So that only encapsulates, I would imagine, a a percentage of folks who could have availed of that service.
12: Oh, yeah. It's it's those who have the ability to do that because if you're in a mental health crisis, a lot of times you don't have the ability to even function. Like, you're not thinking straight. You're not acting any bit... uh, with any kind of thought process, you're just in a crisis. And a lot of times, the only thing you're thinking of is self-harm. So, 488 people that could actually do that, uh, the numbers have to be a heck of a lot higher for how many people actually need mental health help. And six beds, yeah, they're going to be permanently filled yeah. over capacity, And people, they're going to die because there's not enough access. I know... The new Waterford built outside the Health Science Center is going to have 100-plus beds because it's the whole province. Uh, But they quote, this is a huge achievement for Labrador, which I'll give them a little bit of credit. There was no mental health unit in Labrador up until now. But six beds? Come on. You could have 60 beds. But then again, staffing, of course. You can't fill six-bed staff. How are you going to fill a 60-bed staff? But it's still – it's
0: not good enough. Sure. Do – I don't know how to ask this question, but I'm going to give it my best shot – Mental health services need to also be tailor-made for the region. Like, you mean, there'd be a catch-all at the water. For the new bricks and mortar doesn't mean we actually change the way we deliver mental health services and or access to but uniquely in Labrador, does the mental health services need to be carefully crafted for the region, whether it be talking about, and I'm not talking about the prevalence of addictions or what have you, I'm talking about the fact that, that it's a very much a mixed population. And a mental health crisis might be different for you than it is for someone, for instance, suffering from childhood trauma or generational trauma. So is the staffing different or should it or need it be in Labrador versus other parts of the province? Possibly.
12: I would say definitely would have to be tailor-made for Labrador. There is, uh, I like to always speak at the fact there's no addictions rehab or detox facility in Labrador. It's all in, in, on the Island portion. There is one though, that's handled by the indigenous groups for their members that can go to get help based upon their culture, right? Based upon what works best for them. A lot of nature therapy and other things like that. But Labrador in general, I guess you would need it tailored. We're remote; like you're living in the woods <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. You're not, you know, you're not surrounded by big cities and huge populations. So, any kind of treatment for for anybody for mental health, you have to kind of look at the Labrador solution. You know, focus on nature therapy. Focus on peer support with people who have that lived experience versus mm-hmm. just the cookie cutter. This is what the book says. This is what we're going to do because the book doesn't work for a lot of things. We know that. Yeah, we definitely need it kind of tailored for a Labrador solution. I know uh, I've talked to Jordan Brown, my MHA, and uh, Lila Evans from Torngat about rehab facilities for all of Labrador, which would have to kind of be run a little bit different than Humberwood or the Gray Center on the island. want mm-hmm. to have it nature-based. I, I, I joked to Jordan, I said, put it 100 kilometers down the Trans-Labrador Highway in the middle of the woods. Have a focus on nature. Get people out in nature and to experience the, the world and not the haze that they suffered with addictions. Now, that's a solution you wouldn't, that wouldn't work on the island, but it would work up here.
0: Fair enough, and I guess that's why I asked the question, because it's simply not a matter of bodies. It's simply not a matter of beds. It's about approach and what could or should work, you know, acknowledgement of where we are in different parts of the province, because... Uh, something triggered by economic anxiety is different than childhood trauma. Something triggered by marital concerns is different than someone who's experiencing generational trauma. Something that has been triggered by an addiction to alcohol is different than opioids. So we've just got to be a bit more careful in how we talk about things, much like the affordable housing conversation. It's not a one thing. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. Same thing inside of healthcare, especially inside mental health care. Our final thoughts of the morning go to you, Keith, before we say goodbye and have our final break of the week.
12: My big ask for any any mental health or addictions uh, treatment centers is a focus on peer support with people lived experience. I said it in that article. I've said it many times. Uh, the mental health counselors from the health the health authorities, the health service, they're great. They've got the book studies, but they don't know how I lived. Right? If I sit down and talk to them, they they don't have that lived experience. You get that with peer support. You get that with people who have the same kind of experiences. You tell someone something in a group session with a bunch of people lived experience, you see the heads nod. You see the agreement. Yes, I've been there. This is what worked for me. If we're going to do anything for mental health and addictions, and it doesn't matter what mental condition it is. It has to have a focus on lived experience, people helping to lead other people to find a way to live. Plain and simple. You can't do it just with book studies. Book studies are great for some stuff the counselors that have training, but you can tell me with the definition of addiction, I can tell you what it's like to live with it. So sometimes that's, that's a far better help than just sitting down with someone with a book study. So anything they do up here, anything they do with St. John's at the new mental health facility, lived experience has to be the key part
0: of this. As usual, appreciate your perspective and your time this morning, Keith. Stay in touch. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Keith Fitzpatrick calling from Happy Valley-Goose Bay. Final break of the morning. Final break of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. And oh, wait, now got to grab the right clicker here. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters, Pleasantville. He's the Minister of Environment, and Climate Change, That's Bernard Davis. Good morning, Minister Davis. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you?
13: Been a busy day for you, I think. It has. Excellent. I just wanted to uh, touch base uh, and say uh, it's uh, important. Uh, what's happened uh, with the federal government uh, last night with respect to um, our province and the fact that uh, we've been advocating quite heavy for this over the last uh, couple of years. I can speak directly to my own involvement, uh, but I know what the Premier's done. But, um, you know, trying to get uh, Minister Guibault to uh, move on this uh, has been a challenge, but I'm glad to see that they took good steps uh, to move that to protect the constituents we all represent. important.
0: Inside this particular transition pla- plan federally, do you happen to know if it covers anything beyond electric heat pumps? Does it uh, cover electric furnaces? Because the provincial program does. Are electric furnaces or baseboard heaters or anything other than uh, central pumps covered? Do you know?
13: So the the news broke yesterday afternoon, late evening or early evening, sorry. And so our staff are working on that now with the federal government as we speak. So we're trying to determine that. We, we think it's going to augment our program quite nicely and fit directly inside it, which would provide more rebates, uh, more availability to provide uh, more money to individuals to transition. So those programs, uh, I'll give you an example of uh, if someone's on oil right now and they, um, they want to transition away from oil and have to put an electric furnace in, for example, and want to put a couple of uh, more mini splits in uh, or multi-split units, uh, that will be covered under this program and depending on the income level and and the technology of course you can currently receive up to seventeen thousand dollars which would cover most of the cost if not all the cost for individuals in that certain uh... Eight, uh point uh... income bracket and this would just augment that. So they would add an additional $5,000 into that program. So it could be as high as 22000 for individuals that would be that case. But we're going to work as far as we can to expand and, uh, and hit as many people as we possibly can with this program.
0: So all the plans can be coupled between Canada or Greener Homes, this recent announcement, the $157 million here, all could be coupled?
13: Absolutely. That's what, we, that's what we've done with the federal government to get the $157 million uh, to do some $100 million or so for housing over the next four years to transition homes from oil to electric. And then there will be an, another amount of money that we're going to be announcing as soon as the deal is signed with the federal government on uh, municipalities and businesses and, and uh, public buildings to try to transition those. Uh, away from oil as well. So that that hasn't been announced yet, Paddy, but that will be coming very shortly as soon as we get the final agreement signed with the federal government.
0: Do you happen to know if either of the provincial or federal plans are associated with housing starts, you know, to install central heat pumps or electric furnaces or what have you, as opposed to a transition from oil?
13: Uh, I don't know that at this point, Patty. We're still working on that with them, uh, especially with the announcement just recently. The current program that we have didn't include that part. Uh, I know that uh, both my conversations with Minister Guibault as well as Minister Wilkinson on these files have been that we've got to start to move in that direction as well to uh, ensure homeowners uh, that are buying new homes or builders get the, uh, the benefits of trying to provide that most uh, energy-efficient and electric-efficient uh, uh, homes that we possibly can, for, not only for, uh, you know, the adaptation aspect uh, of when the weather gets warmer here it's great to have that cooling option which is an adaptation in this province but also for the savings of the on the electrical grid which is uh, which is fantastic news for us as well right
0: inside your portfolio like the minister of energy technology innovation i think is the department now Andrew parsons he's been the front man on the wind project portfolio but because of huge environmental implications or complications why shouldn't there be the federal uh, impact assessment agency of Canada triggered, so that what people are asking for, with extended time, uh, intervener status, funding for their own experts, that sort of debate and inquiry that would lead to something that is going to have big implications? The Port of Port Peninsula, Mr. Risney's plan covers about 40 percent of the geographical footprint out there. Why shouldn't we <coughs> trigger the federal uh, the federal process?
13: So, Pat, that's a very good question. Uh, they, those the proponents, uh, or sorry, the individuals that have requested that, uh, did request that of the federal government. The federal government said that was not required uh, based on the very fulsome uh, legislatively governed process that we currently have with the environmental assessment process. So we're in that process now. I mean, and I do uh, thank uh, the the residents and businesses and and individuals that came forward to provide insight into what concerns they have or what positive things they see uh, in this process. Uh, And that's exactly what's this process is all about hearing from people they're all going to all that information that is coming together from the 25 uh, business uh, sorry um, government uh, both federal and provincial departments that feed into this process as well all of that is going to be involved in in the decision making process that will be coming in in the coming uh, days
0: because the coming days are exactly when we're going to get a further announcement here last one because i really want to sneak tammy on here as well how far is the retro for the provincial program and the federal program? Like if I just had one put in in May, you know, do I qualify for any of these rebate dollars? Well, so what's the retro for provincial and these, for the newly announced federal program?
13: So the provincial program that we did uh, as of April 1st, so it was backdated to April 1st of this this, past, uh, this this year, 2023. So anyone that would have done work with respect to that, that meets the qualifications of having an oil furnace, no baseboard heaters, uh, those are the things that would be evaluated. With that. And I encourage people to reach out to take charge uh, our two utilities that will do that or reach out to my office and I'll provide them with some information uh, and ensure that they get into the right area. If they've done the work, we want to make sure to get the, the credit uh, and the, the grant back uh, to alleviate some of those costs. I mean, that's what we're all about. That's why the federal and provincial The government's trying to make people and encourage people to make that move sooner rather than later, not only because it's great for greenhouse gas emission reductions, which is excellent, where we all need to be thinking, but also because it can save you anywhere between 15 and 60% on your heating bill, which is, you know, with the cost of living the way it's been from a global perspective, anything we can do to reduce those costs of electricity, we we should do and, and must do.
0: I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you.
13: Thank you very much, Patty. Have a great weekend.
0: You too, sir. Bye bye. All right, it's, uh, Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Bernard Davis. Let's go. We'll Final word this morning goes to line two. Tammy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks. How about you? Good. Thanks.
9: Um, I just want to thank you. I called in a couple of times in the past, and I just want to thank you for your guidance and stuff. Um, I want to talk about the housing crisis in land, And I just want to say that my heart goes out to those people having to live in tents and shelters. And I want us to remember that they're not just people, they are our children. And why I say that is I am a mother who went through hell and back over many years to get my son where he is today. After drugs help for his severe mental illness, off the streets, and a safe place to live. So you're probably wondering why now I'm calling in regarding housing. Uh, my son has an apartment. He's been in the apartment for about three years. Um, the rent started at $600 a month. Um, it has since gone up to $725. Uh, in February, it will go up to $900. Now, he only gets $500 a month on social assistance towards his rent. The rest has to come from his heat and light, his groceries, et cetera, which I had been helping him with. Um, he has applied for the housing allowance, and he has been approved for the housing. Um, he cannot get it because there's other people on the wait list ahead of him, homeless people. So I guess my question is, like, like how, how does this make sense? Um, do we have to wait until he's homeless and cannot secure an apartment to get this allowance? Like what are the answers?
0: I don't know, but I suppose those who are without a roof over their head at some point have to be prioritized, don't you think?
9: They do, but having said that, if, I, if I'm unable to help my son, he is not gonna have a roof over his head. And I know other people in the building, he, my son has severe mental illness, I know people in the building with severe disabilities physical disabilities. They've lived in the building for years and years. Uh, The rent started out as about $300 a month. And in February, he's not going to have a place to live because he can't afford to stay there. So he's out on the street. So then we have more people out on the street.
0: It's a sad state of affairs in many different corners of the province. Uh, Tammy, you're welcome to elaborate and join us again next week for more of this conversation, but right up against 12 o'clock this morning. I appreciate the time. Hope you have a nice weekend, and let's talk again soon. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. That was a handful today. All right, big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.